Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's guest is about to explain to us all why the blockchain is fundamentally flawed, uh, how we could all vote a lot better, and why increasing returns to scale uh, break traditional economic models in, in his view. First though, I just wanted to make sure that all of you know about our job board. The job board is a short uh, curated list of the most promising uh, vacancies that we know people can apply for right now. And it's kept up to date by my wonderful colleague, Maria Gutierrez. She actually uh, gave an update just a few days ago, and it now lists uh, 199 positions that you could apply for, uh, including uh, 76 that were added in the last month. It covers a wide range of problem areas, uh, including, but not only, uh, AI research, uh, preventing wars, promoting effective altruism, ending factory farming, and improving global health and development. Uh, The kinds of roles uh, that are advertised are are all over the place as well, including uh, engineers, managers, operations, outreach, researchers, and more. Uh, And while most roles are in the UK or US, uh, quite a lot are remote, and there's a bunch of others in uh, places as far-flung as uh, Canada, China, uh, India, Kenya, uh, and a bunch of others listed here as well. So if you like the show and would like to get out there and uh, do more good with your life, you should definitely check out the job board and see if there's anything that's the right step for you at the moment. Uh, the address is 80,000hours.org slash job hyphen board, or you can just go to the homepage and click through to it. Ideally, I would suggest checking it about each two weeks or uh, alternatively subscribing to our newsletter uh, so that uh, you can find out each time there's a new batch of positions to consider. Uh, and that way you won't find out about a role that's really good for you uh, too late to apply by its deadline. Uh, I'll stick up a link to the job board as well as the newsletter sign up uh, in the show notes as always. I would also just like to point out that today's guest would love to have a bunch of listeners uh, go join a conference in Detroit on the weekend of the 22nd to 24th of March. Uh, The event is called Radical Exchange uh, with the letter X, and the tagline is uh, Market Mechanisms for Equality and Cooperation. We'll stick up a link to find out more about that event uh, in the show notes, and I'll mention it again at the end of the interview. And just finally, uh, this week we changed the host for our podcast, which has allowed us to uh, finally get listed on Spotify. Uh, It looks like everything went smoothly on our end, but if you encounter any technical problems with the show, uh, email podcast at 80,000hours.org right away, and we'll do our best to get it fixed up. All right, here's Glenn. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Glenn Weil. Glenn was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he was first a socialist activist and then a Republican and devotee of Ayn Rand. Much of his life since then has been about reconciling these apparently completely contradictory ideologies. He completed a PhD in economics at Princeton, then three years as a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows, then three years as an assistant professor at the University of Chicago, before joining Microsoft as a principal researcher. He's written a wide range of papers on how we might use technology to build new and better social institutions. And most recently, he's become active in trying to create social change by giving talks to activist groups, working with governments and advising startups, especially blockchain startups. His most recent book, co-authored with Eric Posner, is Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society, which includes some of the ideas we hope to talk about today. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Glenn. Thrilled to be here. Hope to get you to talk about your uh, critique of uh, effective altruism and uh, the various ideas in in the book, uh, Radical Markets. But first, uh, what are you doing at the moment and why do you think it's really important work? So what I'm spending my time on is coordinating a social movement that's trying to provide a coherent alternative to neoliberalism that's not either sort of statist 
nor um, sort of nationalist. And that's based on a bunch of ideas derived from economic theory, but integrating thoughts from philosophy, sociology, et cetera, and has really been built up not just through elite academic discourse, but through months of interactions that I and others have been having with a whole range of social actors. So it's been a really interesting and dynamic process. So is, is that this radical exchange uh, organization that you've been founding? Yeah, and the associated movements that are not literally part of the organization, but that are self-organizing, decentralized, et cetera. Yeah. So what is Radical Exchange? Is it a nonprofit or a conference or a community? or uh, All of the above. Uh, so <laughs> uh, Radical Exchange Foundation is a nonprofit, which is running the Radical Exchange Conference. But then there's also startups and activist groups and so forth that are independent. And what kind of work is it pursuing? Has it uh, taken on any particular kind of policies that it's excited about? Or is it just kind of a discussion of uh, like different institutional reforms that, that might be interesting at this point? Well, so it has four different aspects, ideas and research, entrepreneurship and technology, activism and government, and arts and communications. And so in each one of those areas, there's a whole bunch of different activities but, you know, ideas and research is sort of helping to generate these ideas and discussion around them. Arts and communications is sort of educating pe people and helping people imagine this world and imagine issues with it. Um, entrepreneurship and technology is experimenting with these institutions in, in a variety of ways. And uh, activism government is both doing grassroots organizing around this sort of stuff, but also working with technocratic policymakers and political parties and things like that. So that full range of activities is what we think is necessary in loose coordination with each other to make fundamental social change happen in the medium term. So it seems like uh, so far in your career, you've spent kind of more time in academia or writing papers and, and books. And I guess, is this an attempt to kind of get, get into the real world and get your hands dirty trying to, trying to make things happen? Yeah, I mean, until four years ago, I was just straight up an academic. And then until... About six or seven months ago, I was mostly an academic, and my life has completely changed since then. Um, yeah, are you enjoying it more? Oh, this is way more what I was uh, made to do than what I was doing before, for sure. Yeah, t t tell me more. It seems like you were being pretty successful at writing writing all these papers and be being academic, but uh, you love being being more more active than that. I feel like I'm constantly far more challenged in this role than I was before. I felt like before. There was all these ideas coming out and I wasn't even really able to express them because I had to spend so much time doing stuff that I thought was basically a waste of time, like filling in details to get academic papers to be in exactly the format that was not optimal for society, but was optimal for a narrow set of reviewing processes and so mm -hmm. forth. And now I feel like I'm being dramatically more intellectually productive, but also doing it in a democratic conversation with a wide range of people who have become my colleagues. And it's that's just tremendously rewarding. But at the same time, I'm incompetent at 90% of the things I'm now doing, which means that I'm constantly having to grow. So that I really appreciate. So you think this is likely to be kind of a, a permanent shift out of academia into, I guess, was it the, the think tank and policy world? Although I'm not sure I describe well? this as I'm not sure I describe this as think tank and policy world. Okay. I actually don't really like the term policy very much, and we'll turn yeah, to that. I think we'll get more to that when yeah. we talk about uh, effective altruism. <laughs> I thought I thought um, that might uh, might rub you the wrong way. Uh, I'm not sure, not sure what to call it. 
policy has a um, a very elitist, technocratic, statist uh, feeling to it that I'm not very comfortable with. I, I would call myself in the social imagination world or something like that, you know. Okay. But uh, or the democratic world would be okay with me. Okay. You know? Cool. All right. Uh, Engage in grass, uh, grassroots organizing, community organizer. Something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly an element of it. But yeah, I I, I don't. I don't think I can move backwards in my life, uh, if that's what you mean. Mm. But uh, I find it very hard to predict precisely what I'll be doing in six or eight months. I think I would be violating the law of iterated expectations uh, <laughs> if I uh, if I thought I could predict what I'll be doing in eight or ten months because uh, You'd already be doing I've been it. surprised so much that um, I should be expecting to be surprised again. So. Okay, so we'll, we'll come to the, back to those policy issues uh, later on. Uh, not policy issues, so community imagination issues. Um, yeah, let's, let's talk about uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency for a second, which uh, hasn't really come up on, on the show yet, but a lot of people have an interest in. And I guess for, for any listeners who still somehow have no idea what the blockchain is or how it works, uh, we'll stick up a link to another podcast you can listen to about that on another show. Uh, or I guess you can just skip this section. Um, I should listen to that, I guess. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> Econ Talks had some, had, had some good episodes yeah. on this, but yeah, we're going to avoid rehashing all of it. But yeah, a couple of months on, on Twitter, uh, I noticed that you wrote, uh, it seems to me that the most serious organized and broad-based movement for positive forward-looking liberal vision of the future is the blockchain movement, uh, especially Ethereum. So when people ask me, what is blockchain good for? I respond, what was the temple of Jerusalem good for? For making it rain or for helping create and preserve a people who eventually led to Jesus Christ, Benjamin Disraeli and Karl, Karl Marx? It seems uh, to me that in the same way, the use case of Ethereum is less any particular technical question and more offering a vision of the future that can save us from returning to the 1930s next time we hit a recession. So uh, yeah, very, very optimistic there about Ethereum and the blockchain community. Uh, can, can, can you expand on that? What, what is it uh, about the, that vision of the future that you're particularly excited by? So I think, first of all, there's very few spaces in our society for talking about fundamental notions of legitimacy and political organization. And in particular, our society has gone increasingly, and I'm talking especially about the U.S., I think it's less severe in Europe, but in the U.S., there's an attitude that technology is going to be disruptive, we can have all sorts of technological change, but that changes in our social institutions uh, are just sort of dismissed. And um, I think blockchain, by casting the problem of social organization as a technology problem, which is not really what the blockchain is about. It's primarily a question of social organization. But by casting it in that way, it's opened up a space for the exploration of these fundamental questions of social legitimacy, which I think are the critical questions facing our society right now, our societies right now. And I think that to a large extent, those questions are only being answered by sort of nationalists and statists of various sorts. And I don't think there's been a lot of progress by broad liberals in answering those types of questions. And I don't think all of the blockchain world is liberal, but a large chunk of it is. And so I think there's been a really interesting space for genuinely liberal thoughts to be aired and explored there. Uh, what do you mean by liberal? That's like a word that has like a lot of different uses. Yeah, so I, I have my particular meaning of liberal, which is um, broader than most of the standard uses, I would say. So I, I would describe liberalism as the opposition to hierarchical, historically derived, arbitrary, centralized authority and in favor of dynamic, emergent social organization. 
Okay, yeah. And why, why is that a better way of, of organizing things? Well, it offers the possibility of progress. I think other forms of organization are rigid and non-adaptive to changing circumstances and or are what you might call totalitarian or unitarian. They don't allow for complexity and richness and diversity. We recently had an, an interview with Martin Gurry that is going to come out before this, this interview. Have, have you read his book, uh, The Revolt of the Public? No. Okay. Yeah. It's, you should check it out. It deals with some similar themes of, uh, I guess, like hierarchical organizations versus uh, grassroots ones. And uh, I guess the, 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 the tension between them and kind of where, where each of them has its strengths and weaknesses and yeah, where, where the balance should lie. Um, yeah. So how, how, how do you think that this like um, uh, more, I guess, would describe it as a greater willingness to rethink how society ought to be organized uh, could, could save us from a, from a great depression? So one thing on on this issue of hierarchical versus uh, grassroots organizations, I think it's important to distinguish liberalism, as I described it, from any particular set of institutions, which may or may not manage to achieve those liberal goals. So one major problem with grassroots organizations at present is that they are often quite inefficient in various ways. But I don't think that that's necessarily a necessary property of non-hierarchical or non-historically derived institutions. It happens to be a property of many such things that we've observed. Mm. So uh, I, I think that's important to keep in mind. Fundamentally, uh, I don't think it'll save us from the depression, but it will save us from the reactions that came to that. Okay. So, you know, in the 1930s, uh, the Great Depression let loose two totalitarian regimes that nearly wiped out, you know, human life or what was worth living for. And we, we were saved from that, I think, ultimately by a redemption of liberalism by things like the New Deal and other social reforms in Europe. And, and those offering a coherent liberal vision of where things uh, could go instead. And I think without those visions, uh, we would have gone somewhere very dark. And so I think right now, that's what we need to discover. Um, we need to discover a vision for today that offers people a plausible alternative to nationalism and statism as ways of uh, addressing the current crisis and legitimacy in wealthy countries. Yeah, so I guess some people might might look at the 30s and think uh, that uh, what we needed was was like less radical rethinking of uh, of how a society ought to be organized because that kind of gave us fascism and communism, which which we weren't too optimistic about. Uh, but I guess you think uh, it's okay to do radical rethinking as long as it's within the the liberal tradition, or as long as it's not kind of of a statist form. Well, first of all, uh, radical rethinking I think is called for by the conditions of society. I don't think there was an alternative. So whether one would have liked to have preserved a world where a few people are incredibly wealthy and everybody else is starving in depression-like conditions, and you know, you, you could have thought, oh, that, that's not such a bad world, at least we avoided fascism or communism, I just don't think that that was tenable. So even if you're inclined to think that that's fine, I think you would just, um, you would not do well. Uh, and, and John Maynard Keynes very much made that case that um, in order to survive, liberalism had to adapt. And uh, I also think just there are fundamental intellectual incoherencies in liberalism back then and liberalism now that are going to come home to roost at some point regardless. So I, so I actually also agree with the intellectual critiques of the nationalists and the statists today. I think that they're right to say that you know neoliberalism and capitalism are just fundamentally intellectually bankrupt. But even if you don't agree with that, 
I think that most people think that now. And so unless you have a plan to exterminate them or eliminate their political voice, uh, you're unlikely to um, be able to survive in democratic societies without addressing the concerns that they have. Yeah. Uh, w- w- in what way are they intell- intellectually bankrupt? I guess I'm like fairly in favor of this like new wave of, uh, of neoliberalism, which is like more, more perhaps more of a like economically rationalist uh, center left like politics. Uh, but it seems to me like like kind of the current system has given us like the, the best of times, setting aside risks from new technologies, which of course I'm worried about, uh, or you know perhaps the risk of like war between the U.S. and China. It's like uh, you know poverty is like declining very quickly. It's like uh, globally like equality is increasing very rapidly. It's uh, it seems like yeah. there's like the glass is pretty half full. So I think the fundamental problem is that what makes civilization possible is the fact that we can all do more together than we can each do on our own. That that's an idea that is called um, increasing returns in economics. And the problem is that basic economic theory will tell you that capitalism does not lead to good outcomes under in the presence of increasing returns. And I think most of the problems that we are seeing in the world today can be traced to that. You know, global warming is an, is an increasing returns phenomenon. It affects everyone on the planet. Most of the network industries that have so much concentration of power that we're worried about them are increasing returns phenomena. Most of the issues around insurance has to do with the fact that insurance has increasing returns properties to it. And that's why people think about things like single payer systems and so forth. So most of the major social issues that we're dealing with community and the feelings of destruction of community that people have come from the inability of the quote magic unquote of capitalism to deal with increasing returns when in fact, increasing returns are literally what's responsible for everything good that you were talking about since the Great Depression. And yet you go to literally any economics textbook, you read any of that stuff, it will, one of the first things it will tell you is all this works under the assumption of decreasing returns. If there's increasing returns, we don't really have anything to say about that. Go talk to someone other than an economist, you know, more or less. And so like what that amounts to is basically saying everything that's responsible for all the wealth that we have, we don't really have much to say about that. It's happened by accident. And then, and, and, and then, and then this little edge case of like decreasing returns, which we know cannot possibly be most of what's going on, or we wouldn't have all the wealth that we have. Well, that, that we can account for. And then we're going to say, oh, all the wealth we have is attributable to this thing, which we know only works in the edge case, which we know can't have anything to do with all the wealth we have. So that's just like, I'm not saying that like that immediately means any particular alternative system, but to think like things are like pretty good intellectually, you know, uh, when that's the state of affairs, I think takes like sort of really bizarre intellectual gymnastics. Okay, so let's 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 go a little bit slower. So, uh, can, can you explain why why the framing of like the increasing returns to scale is like the the best way of looking at at this problem, and maybe like what what do the models say is going to be the inefficiency when you have increasing returns to to scale? Like what 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 is happening, and how are we getting things wrong? Well, so let me start with the example of public goods, which will probably be more familiar to people, and then a lot of people will probably object. Well, there aren't really that many pure public goods and whatever, and we can get into that. But the point is that the basic logic of public goods is the logic behind why increasing returns doesn't work under capitalism. So the logic of public goods are, imagine there's some thing that we can all pour money into, which will generate benefits for all of us rather than just for one of us. Now, each of us has an incentive to contribute to that thing until our personal marginal utility equals the cost of contributing further to that thing. 
But the actual optimality condition is that the sum of all the benefits that we receive is equal to the cost of one of us contributing one additional dollar. So what you then get is if people are individualistically contributing to that, a factor one over N roughly underfunding of the resource, right? And so that is not a small inefficiency. That's not like, oh, the marginal tax rate is 70% and therefore people only have 30% of the incentive. This is like orders of magnitude underfunding of the relevant thing. And so then you might say, well, how common are public goods? And if you want to say 100% pure public goods, maybe not that common, but there's like no 100% pure private goods either. So then the question is, where on that spectrum do most things lie? And my claim is like, what makes something like a public good is that it is increasing returns to scale, that we can achieve more together than we could each achieve on our own. And then you have to ask yourself, do you think that as an overall description of human civilization, the notion that we would be all basically equally well off if we were, or even better off in the case of decreasing returns, if we were isolated in individual huts interacting with no other human beings? And I think most people think probably not. Probably that would not uh, lead to as high, you know, flourishing of human civilization in whatever sense you, you know, take that to mean. So kind of a public good, like say creating a piece of information that everyone can use for free. Is that the kind of thing we're thinking there's like increasing returns to scale because you have more people who can produce that? Let let me give you an example just very concretely from everyday life of where I think like it's pretty obvious that capitalism is sort of orders of magnitude off of leading to anything like efficiency. So imagine that the New York Times tomorrow discovers incontrovertible proof that Donald Trump is literally receiving a daily batch of orders from Vladimir Putin, right? How much money do you think that the New York Times will make as a result of having discovered that relative to the amount of money they'd make from having a really good cat video? Possibly more, probably not, but but certainly not many times more. And the reason is that that information that they discovered, like nobody needs to read the New York Times piece and certainly not for like years and watch tons of ads in order to figure that out. Whereas the cat video holds your attention for a while, right? And so like the value of the information they create just bears no relationship whatsoever to like the reward that they're getting. Yeah. I mean, or, or at least the ratio of noise to signal is like, you know, 99.9 or something like that. Yeah. I went on a rant about how there's no reason to think that capitalism like makes information economics uh, work well. I think back with back in an episode with Brian Christian, uh, an, algor- yeah. an algorithm, algorithm to live by. I'm Christian, are there like... Are there common examples outside of kind of information economics uh, where like things are much more uh, inefficient than, than what people realize that there's a, that's like not commonly recognized? Well, I mean, first of all, all monopolies are basically just examples of this. So like every distortion that you consider to be a monopoly distortion is effectively an example of this because like why do monopolies exist? Because a bunch of people split up can't do the thing as well as one person who does it all together. But then if you turn that into private property, the person's going to use that to extract as much rent as they can, rather than providing as much value as they're able to. And so like all of the like oppression of corporate power, all of the like stuff about monopolies and and most of the environmental crap that we are dealing with, like climate change. Again, you fix the climate. We all benefit from that. And like, you know, you can't really exclude people from that. I mean, that's actually maybe about as close to a pure public good as you get. 
And then you've got all these different countries that all want their selfish things. And we just don't have institutions for actually dealing with that. Now, maybe to some limited extent, some democracies in some cases try to deal with that. But like democracy is just like a profoundly messed up and not relevant mechanism, at least as it's currently practiced and adapted to the like actual challenges of public goods that that we're facing as a world. Okay, all right. I want to take a take a step back for a minute, back back to crypto, because we're, we're yeah. going to come to these like mechanisms for public good funding uh, later yeah. on, and it might be might be worth talking about the about the book first. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what what do you think are the are the biggest downsides of of the of the crypto community? I guess I, I only have like vague exposure to it, and it seems to me like uh, you know whoever came up or whatever group of people came up with with Bitcoin are clearly geniuses, and Vitalik is uh, Vitalik Buterin, a creator of Ethereum, is um is otherworldly. I think it is insightfulness. But I guess it also seems to have kind of attracted a lot of like overconfident people and people who are drawn in by ideology uh, more than anything else. And I guess at, at, at the worst end, there's kind of a lot of scammers and bullshit artists who've seen a chance to make a quick buck. Um, did, did you see them like uh, damaging the community or you think it's still overall it's like a very good group? Oh, uh, so first of all, I would say that the technology that is currently called blockchain, which has a bunch of different elements to it, I think is a dead end. And I, I think it is very, very few applications, if any, where I think that that's going to be the right type of a data structure to use. I also think it has very problematic social implications. So I actually think the ideology instantiated by the actual technical protocols right now is dark and deeply problematic. And I think that like there's a spectrum from really intelligent person who has a good understanding of what's going on through deeply naive and somewhat like self-deluding deliberately because of potential greed and so forth issues through to outright scammers. And like, if you ask for the center of gravity of that within the like typical thing in the community, it's definitely towards that latter end of the spectrum. Hmm. So there are like huge problems. However, like capitalism has enormous problems, as I've been trying to say. Hmm. And there is very little space in our society for seriously reconsidering that and for people to think boldly about these things. And I think that this is offering a space for that. And that's, that's extremely important. Okay, you're, you're, you're completely confounding my plan for this interview here, because I thought you were going to be like, explain how the blockchain is going to be very useful. And I was going to have to explain why I'm kind of skeptical that its applications are terribly useful. Um, yeah. Okay, let's talk about the technical side. Why, why do you think that the, the blockchain is, uh, is, is overrated? Or that, that it's like, it sounds like you th- even think it might be harmful overall? Yeah, so first of all, I think that the data structure instantiates a view of how data, like where data originates and how it should be stored, that is pretty inimical to like what's the right way of thinking about where data is and how it should be stored. So in particular, I'm a big fan of decentralization, but the blockchain is not really based on that concept. It's really based on the notion that a large chunk of all data should be completely public and then a bunch of stuff should be utterly private. And that is ultimately, and maybe we'll turn to this more later, sort of the anathema of the way I think about things. I actually think that everything has some sphere of intimacy where it should be shared and some other sphere of intimacy or of of society into which it's leaking would be problematic. And that it's almost never the case that you want things stored completely globally. And on the other hand, it's almost always the case that you don't want them, you know, uh, to be overly cloistered. And so data structures that 
instantiate the appropriate level of decentralization and that actually store data in relationship to the communities to which it pertains have to be a much closer to optimal way of thinking about data structures. So that that's that's like at the very core of how it's conceived, I think, a fundamental problem with the blockchain. Can you cash that that out in an example where the, the current approach would, I guess, lead to things being too public in a way that's harmful and like how it might be organized better? Well, I mean, basically, the blockchain says you are anonymous online and then everything that you do online is like totally public and completely transparent. But like, think about your reputation. Your reputation is not something you need to share with everybody in every context. But on the other hand, it's incredibly important that you not be anonymous, because if you're anonymous, then you're unaccountable. So instead, the appropriate thing to do, like if I was looking into you, Rob, and saying, is this a guy I should be doing a podcast with? Like probably what I wouldn't want to do is go to some global repository where every action that you've ever taken is either listed or completely detached from you. Instead, I would go to some people, I would get in confidence some references about you. You see what I'm saying? Like that is the, that's the way that human societies are and should work. Things should not be either global or utterly individualistic and private. They should always be shared with some communities and not with other communities. And the blockchain just doesn't have the affordances naturally to allow for that sort of a structure as a technical level. Okay. So are, are there any applications that, that you are excited about? I guess what's, what's your view on the, on the kind of use case side of things, or is that, that not your area? The problem is that I, I don't have a lot of examples of things for which I really think blockchain is like necessary and sufficient as it's currently instantiated. Like there's lots of things that people in the blockchain community are trying to think about that I think are really important problems to think about. But the technology as it currently stands, I'm I'm not sure there's anything I think is really a desirable application. Is there a vision going forward on the technical side for how we could produce a data structure that that doesn't have to have this like that between super public and super private? I'm, I'm working on that stuff a lot. And I think the notion that mechanisms rather than discretionary centralized authorities should be the basis for us interacting in information structures. I'm a huge supporter of that. And and I think that honestly, that's really what has gotten many of the people excited about blockchains. But I don't think the actual technical structure of the current setup, I have a clear vision for an area where I really think of it as the right, right application. I mean, maybe there's some notion of central reserve deposits or other things that really should be global public records of some sort where something like this is not terrible. But even there, I would say the proof of work consensus is really a bad way to do it. Um, Explain that. It's basically this stuff that means you have to like mine things and like there's all this waste of energy and so forth. So that's not a very good way to, to structure it. Yeah. And so, there, and there are other problems as well. So like even in those narrower things where I don't think the problem is the data structure per se, there are many ways, issues with how it's implemented at present that I think are fundamentally flawed and need to be replaced. Okay. All right. Let's, let's move on from, from the blockchain and uh, talk, talk about your book, uh, Radical Markets. So I've, I've read it twice now, and I, I can honestly say the uh, the first time at least I was just incredibly excited. I felt like a like a young economist again uh, back back when I was an undergrad because it's uh, back then all the time there's all these big new ideas that you're encountering that help to explain the world and 
see, show you a path forward for making it better. And now I'm like become old and jaded and it's like hard to find any uh, really exciting new ideas anymore. But, uh, but you had, uh, uh, at least, at least four of them that, that I, that I really hadn't heard before, which I thought was, was very impressive. Well, um, and, and the thing I would say for myself is that when I came up with those ideas, I experienced that sort of joy as well. But even more so in the six months since the book came out, I'd say I've made more intellectual progress than in the whole 10 years before that. So it's been just one unending sort of trip through a candy store for me <laughs> on this book, uh, book project. So I need to start reading all of your new, of, of, of your new papers, evidently. Um, yeah, so uh, unfortunately, we're not going to have uh, that, that long to talk about the, the pros in the book. I think there's only, only one that I really want to dive into because we've got so many yeah. other issues to discuss. And I guess people can read the book if they're interested. And I can, I can stick up links to reviews, both positive and critical. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe just quickly, could you try to like summarize as, as fast as possible? Uh, like, what are the five proposals that you put forward in the book? And like, what's, what's, what's the case for them? So we, we uh, propose an alternative to private property that's based on the idea of auctions, where everyone, every like corporation or uh, person with significant private property would self-assess the value of the asset and pay a tax on that self-assessed value, but have to sell the asset at that price if someone else came along to buy it. And uh, this would both fund enough to dramatically reduce inequality it would basically make two thirds of private wealth common property. And at the same time, it would make a much more efficient and dynamic economy because no assets would be subject to the current monopolization and they could be much more easily transferred to new uses. Uh, this is Rob here uh, chiming in after the interview recording. Uh, I just wanted to offer some more information on this first proposal in the book uh, because I think it will come in quite handy to know a bit more uh, later in the episode. Uh, the proposal is called the Common Ownership Self-Assessed Tax, or COST, C-O-S-T. So imagine that you owned a piece of commercial real estate uh, with offices on it. Under the COST, you would have to pay an annual tax of, uh, say, 10% on the value of that property. Uh, now, a classic problem with such property taxes is that it's really hard to know the value of any particular piece of real estate. Um, and the cost solves this in a, in a clever way. So you get to say what you think the property is worth to you at any uh, given point in time and pay the tax on that amount. But there's uh, a catch. Uh, your valuation would be listed publicly and you would have to be willing to sell it to anyone at that self-assessed price. So this obviously gives you a reason to report a uh, high value to avoid being forced to suddenly sell it for a price that's actually uh, much less than, than how much you value it. But on the other hand, uh, you, you'd like to suggest a, a lower value if you could get away with it uh, in order to uh, lower your tax bill. And the point at which these uh, two considerations balance out uh, is if the tax rate is the same as the uh, rate at which the, uh, that particular kind of property uh, naturally and efficiently changes hands. So if it's uh, natural and, and kind of efficient for, for a piece of commercial real estate uh, to get a new owner uh, once each 20 years, then with a 5% tax rate, that's uh, one over 20, uh, your best bet is just to write down uh, how much you actually value the, uh, that, that piece of property. That's uh, pretty neat. Now, uh, taxes like this would obviously uh, also discourage you from ever investing in creating valuable things because uh, as uh, the thing that you're making uh, became more valuable, uh, your taxes on it would go up, uh, kind of extracting some of the value that you're creating. And this, as always, is, is, is a good reason to keep tax rates lower than they otherwise would be. Uh, but Glenn thinks that uh, suitably low rates would uh, have an acceptable, uh, like not, not unreasonable effect on, um, on investment rates. And keep in mind that uh, other taxes could be reduced as the uh, cost increased. Uh, now, for Glenn, a uh, big benefit of having uh, publicly listed prices on all of these significant pieces of property um, and allowing folks to kind of quickly buy them at that declared price 
is that it would improve uh, something called allocative efficiency uh, by, by reducing search costs uh, and the amount of um, time-consuming kind of competitive or strategic uh, bidding behavior among uh, buyers and sellers of unique pieces of property. Uh, anyone who's kind of bought or sold a house uh, knows that there's a really big uh, transaction cost associated with that. Uh, and arguably, this would this would reduce those quite a bit and ensure that these like big pieces of property could uh, quickly flow to the person who values them most highly and can make the best use of them, uh, which is all yeah, allocative efficiency. Now, uh, uh, Glenn speculates that we could end up funding much of the government uh, using this uh, cost tax uh, and that it could ultimately end up uh, being applied to uh, not only things like commercial real estate, uh, but but all forms of wealth, which is uh, pretty topical at the moment. And uh, you could look at it in a way, uh, this would mean we would be funding government by renting all of our significant property from it, which I think uh, explains uh, some of the language that he uses later in the show. Now, uh, as you're probably thinking, there's some uh, pretty uh, obvious and serious practical issues with uh, with this kind of tax uh, proposal. But I think the, the book uh, does a decent job, though, of um, making them seem surmountable, at least for uh, some kinds of property anyway. Uh, now you know a bunch about the common ownership self-assessed tax or cost. Uh, so let's get back to the second proposal in the book. The second idea is called quadratic voting. It's an alternative way of voting that protects minorities rather than them needing to be protected by new rights and things like that, um, separate rights. And the notion is that everyone would have a budget of voice credits that they could spend on different issues where the cost of the number of votes that they get is the square of the votes that they get on that issue. And that allows for truly like representative decision making where everyone can weigh in in proportion to how much they care, which we think would resolve a lot of the current tensions around democracies. Third, we propose a new system of migration where rather than nation states having the pr primary responsibility for migrants coming in, and therefore most of the benefits of migration accruing to wealthy employers or the migrants themselves, we would allow individuals and communities to sponsor migrants and to benefit from them coming so that you would have far broader support for migration uh, as well as potentially much higher levels thereof. Fourth, we argue that almost all of the market power that exists is not is actually ignored by competition policy at present. And that, that most of that comes from two sources. One is institutional investors who own most of the corporate economy and have no interest in seeing people compete. That's like Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street. And from the power that companies have over their workers rather than over their consumers. And that there are simple, very simple antitrust policy changes that would address these issues. And these should be implemented and that they would have macro level effects on inequality and growth. And finally, we argue that all the data that all of us are every day feeding to Google and Facebook is what trains all of their artificial intelligence and machine learning systems that everyone is saying are going to replace us as workers. And that if we just recognized that data as the labor that it is, we would be able to provide people a sustainable living rather than telling them that they're useless. It sounds like you've like had various like changes of opinion or you like learned lots of new things since the book came out, I guess, about eight, eight months ago. Um, which, yeah. which of these do you, do you now think is, is the worst? Uh, are there any that you've uh, gone, gone cold on? I mean, I think my interpretation of all of them has changed quite a bit, but I don't think that there's anything we said in the book that I don't think would be an improvement over the status quo as described in the book. But I, I think probably the one that I think is most misconceived in terms of how it's described is the immigration one. And I think the data is labor one was also described poorly uh, in the book. Yeah. How, how do you think uh, you, you miscommunicated them? Well, I think fundamentally... The whole book 
but especially those are too individualistic and don't think enough about supporting social institutions, or even they just conceive of the relevant actors as too much being isolated individuals, uh, rather than being various groups or public good providing entities or however you want to describe it. And I think that that, that was confused and confusing. Uh, so uh, yeah, is there any of these that you think is just kind of a, a no-brainer that should just be uh, turned into turned into policy? I guess you hate that word, but <laughs> should be should be done uh, sooner rather than later. Well, I think the things that are closest to quote policy unquote are the things in the data's labor chapter and the antitrust chapter, and I think those are rapidly happening in both Europe and increasingly even in the U.S. So I think that that stuff is policy ish and is being treated as such. And I think it's making great progress. So yeah, so uh, uh, the, the antitrust one there is the idea that uh, kind of an, an index fund that that owns uh, all of the comp like, yeah, kind of all of the companies in America, it would have to choose if it's if it gets sufficiently big, it would have to choose just one airline say that it's going to invest in uh, so that it can't own own a large fraction of all right. of them and then just like encourage them not to compete with one another, which is just an obvious kind of form. Yeah, uh, an anti competitive trust. So yesterday, we had the great tragedy of having lost Jack Bogle, mm. who was the founder of Vanguard, and a, not just a hero, but a personal mentor of mine and my wife's, and a truly great man. Uh, when I first told him about my views on this, it was a subject of some contention. Um, <laughs> but I, I, one thing I greatly admire about him is that over the course of several years since then, he really came around. And he was one of the most important voices warning of too much power being in too few hands uh, in that industry. Um, so that that's something I think definitely needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. Great. All right. Okay. So let's let's dive into uh, one of these ideas in in greater detail, and it's uh, one that I haven't haven't heard discussed on, on other podcasts as much, which is uh, quad, quadratic voting. So you gave a very quick description of quadratic voting uh, earlier, but kind of uh, what 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 is it in some more detail, and kind of what's what's the case for it being better than than just a one person one vote system that we have today? So the idea is that every citizen will be allocated, say, an equal budget of voice credits, uh, which they can use to vote on different issues or candidates in favor of or against. Uh, and they have to pay out of their voice credits the square of the number of votes that they buy. And the reason that the square is the right formula is that you want people to buy votes in proportion to how much they care about an issue. But in order for that to be the case, people have to buy votes just up until the point where the next vote is worth it to them. And in the quadratic formula and only in that formula, the cost of the next vote is proportional to how many votes you've already bought. And so that gives everyone an incentive to weigh in precisely in proportion to how much they care. So that's how to think about it from a utilitarian perspective. But more broadly, what I would say is that quadratic voting gives an opportunity for people to express their commitments and their engagement with different aspects of social life in a fluid and open way that is not allowed under standard voting protocols. Albert Hirschman once said that authoritarianism actually gives people a greater ability to speak sometimes than does democracy because it's too cheap to speak under democracy. And so there's no way for people to actually show that something's really important to them. Whereas under authoritarianism, if you go out and protest in the street, you know that's really an important thing to someone. So in some ways, what quadratic voting does is without the violations of freedom, gives people an opportunity to truly show what's important to them. So is, is the idea that kind of 
each year, each voter would get, you know, 100 voice credits that they can like then spread out over various issues that they that they want to vote on. Uh, or is it or is it that people people could buy these buy these voice credits or is it kind of both both ideas uh, are out there? It's complicated because it depends whether you're talking about a proposal that I'm making over what time horizon where. But I think if you ask my ultimate vision of the world, probably I, I have a vision where this sort of expression of voice replaces income. So there's not even a clear notion of money. So, so then, then even asking the question becomes difficult. And in the short term, I would say you should give voice credits in relatively egalitarian and legitimately accepted ways that are easy for people to grasp and be happy with. And, and is there some realm in between those two where you might use something more like money? Possibly, but it's probably not that much. All right. So, uh, w- when did when was this idea first proposed, and was it was it you you and your uh, like colleagues who, who originated it? You know, the truth is that there is nothing new, truly new under the sun. There are precedents in some form for pretty much everything. You can, in some ways, trace this back to Roger Penrose in the nineteen forties. Hmm. Uh, you can, in some ways, trace it back to the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. But in terms of something that is like recognizably decodable as quadratic voting and intelligible even to most economists as such. It, it originates in a paper in 2012 that I wrote, and, and I came up with it in 2009. Has it been applied anywhere? And, and where do you think it might have the, have the greatest contribution? So it's been used a lot in polling right mm. now. Okay. Uh, but it's also been used in export-import regulatory compliance, blockchain stuff. It's been used in inside lots of uh, organizations. It's been used for among students. But in the long term, I think, you know, the most important way is to deal with global public goods like climate change or something like that. But that's obviously going to take longer than some of these other impl- <laughs> applications do. So there's a whole range of things. Uh, so c- can you explain how would this help with, with climate change? And for that matter, how is it being used in this import-export regulation? Well, they're using it to elect block makers who then verify compliance with various regulations and the participants who helped elect them come from the governments or other organizations that are involved in regulatory compliance for import-export. In terms of climate change, the idea would be that you have to come to an agreement on international rules that have very disparate impacts on many different people. And you need to have a clear understanding of the trade-offs that people have between different aspects of that agreement. Because some aspects have huge effects on one country, others have huge effects on others, and you need a way to make that credible. And in that process of bargaining, quadratic voting is a natural tool to use to express those views. I see. So we're imagining that we're at the at the Paris Climate Conference where they're trying to Come up with well, some I don't know what agreement. city they're moving on to now. <laughs> now that Paris is over, but yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so, so the next version of that, and I Nairobi. guess <laughs> And I guess uh, we're going to divvy out voice credits. I suppose in order to make this appealing to countries, it would have to be to some extent in proportion to their power or their influence or their size or something. Probably, yeah. So more powerful countries get get more voice credits. Otherwise, they're just not going to be interested in participating. But then yeah. this will kind of streamline the, the the negotiations and the trade offs that have to be made between different countries because. Uh, it will be easier for countries to communicate sincerely how much they care about different about different issues, which is kind of like the polling application that I was telling you about, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Do, do you want to explain uh, how how it works in how it works in polling? Yeah. So we we ran a survey for about five thousand people 
where they there were 10 hot button U.S. issues like, you know, repeal Obamacare, deport a bunch of illegals, et cetera. And people had 100 voice credits to allocate in favor of or against these different issues. And uh, according to this, sum of the squares is equal to your total budget rule. So that's the idea. Yeah. So maybe, maybe explain it in that concrete case. I, I imagine people have probably seen polls before. It's like you've got 100 points that you get to divvy up between different uh, different issues that you care about. Uh, but it's but in that case, it's linear rather than quadratic. So you can give like yeah. 10 different issues, 10 points. So um, here what happens is you keep pressing like plus or go up on something. It's like a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And as you do, the scale goes down at an increasing rate. So you can visually see the fact that it's got this quadratic structure to it. That it's getting more and more expensive to, to vote harder and harder. Exactly. And again, so, so, so the reason is that like casting extra votes, uh, it's like imposing, it's a greater and greater imposition on other people. Is that the idea? Yeah. Uh, but but why why is my second vote like a greater imposition on on someone else than than my first vote? Like from their point of view, they don't care whether I voted twice or two other people have each voted once. So basically, if if the system is working optimally, then suppose you don't participate. The system should be doing what is best for everyone other than you. Now, okay. if I start voting, I'm moving away from the optimal point for everyone else. But the loss from moving away from an optimal point is always second order. There's, there's no first order loss because otherwise you would have moved where we were before to somewhere else. So this, okay, this makes it a bit more intuitive. So the idea is like you've got some kind of like opti- uh, some equilibrium point that's like the intersection between what, what everyone else wants. And then as you move away, the size of the like imp- of the imposition on other people's preferences uh, is like a triangle or a square exactly. or something like that. Right. And so, yeah. and of course, so it, and, and so then it's growing to the square because the area of a, of a square or a triangle is, is, uh, is to the square. Okay. That makes it a bit more intuitive. So uh, do, do you want to paint, paint a vision for, for how this would work in kind of uh, like state or, or, or national elections? Yeah, I mean, I think eventually we'd like to have a system where, you know, there's some pool of voice credits that you have to spread across many different elections, including state, local, national referenda elections for, you know, high office, election for parliament, etc. And you can spread your votes across all of these so you can weigh in on the things that are most important to you and weigh less in on things that are less important to you. Um, And you could save it across time to weigh on the elections that are most important to you and less on the ones that are less important to you. So uh, one concern that people have with like anyone being able to vote more than once is that it would lead to like some people dominating dominating a decision. Or they're, they're worried about the inequality that this would create. Is, is, is the quadratic formula or the using the square root like a sufficient dampener that you think it would have an, accept, like an acceptable well, degree? Well, of like- certain, certain, certainly that's true. But I think the other important thing to recognize is that there exists no system that is truly equal because in the end we elect representatives. And those representatives weigh in much more than the rest of us do. So there's always going to be a system by which we reveal that some people decide to have more influence than other people do. That's just that is in the nature of politics. So the question is, can we do that in a way that's as optimal and as free and as equal in in an aggregate sense as possible? And I think the quadratic voting does that in a way that no other system that's yet been proposed does. So, so that raises the point that presumably some people would anticipate that if we adopted quadratic voting, that they would lose influence because they get more power, uh, like in a, in a less observable way here. They have more discretion in a less observable way here, whereas quadratic voting would, would disempower them somewhat and they might oppose this. Do, do you have any sense of uh, kind of who those people might be and how they might be appeased so they, they don't mind it so much? Well, I mean, I think one important thing to recognize is that quadratic voting actually can give you efficiency gains. 
And so it doesn't have to be the case that things come at one person's expense and benefit someone else. Uh, You can actually get better outcomes overall. But in addition to that, I think that, you know, there are going to be people who will be disadvantaged by this. I actually think it's a bit hard to tell precisely who those people will be. And they may not even be within some particular identifiable, externally visible group. So I'm not sure in in the case of quadratic voting, I could even very clearly tell you who the people are going to be who will benefit or be harmed. And it's not even clear that they could predict it. My guess is that there are some groups that have really disproportionate political power because of quirks in any given electoral system, like farmers in the United States, who are going to be disadvantaged by moving to any sort of reasonably coherent electoral system or people who are benefiting from gerrymanders. But I don't think that's a specific quadratic voting feature. It's more a general feature of any plausible electoral reform. I guess in, in as much as people can't tell ahead of time who's going to win and who's going to lose, that's good because there's not, there's not going to be an identifiable lobby group that like knows that they're getting disadvantaged. Well, that, that, and, and, that's and James wanna... Buchanan's idea of a constitution. You know, mm. A constitution is meant to be made in such a fashion that it's hard for people to clearly identify where they'll end up standing. So they're put in a quasi behind the veil of ignorance position. So uh, I've got some... Uh, possible concerns about this to, to bring up. But first, I was going to ask you, yeah, what, what, what do you think are the biggest uh, downsides of, of quadratic voting? And, and if it either like doesn't ever get used uh, very much, or uh, if it does get used, it turns out badly, uh, why, why would that be? Well, I mean, I think that the biggest issues with quadratic voting have to do with the fact that it assumes a fixed polity. And uh, this other idea, liberal radicalism, tries to address that. The, the other biggest issue is that it kind of solves the collective action problem almost too well, in the sense that it If people are acting purely self-interestedly, it should lead to optimal outcomes. But actually, people are altruistic towards other people to some extent. And we've evolved mechanisms that sort of address our selfishness. And because this is such a powerful solution for that, it almost maybe goes too far. And we need to find other ways of sort of like figuring out what those other social structures are and sort of compensating for them somehow if we're going to have an optimal system. Yeah, well, I think, I think we'll come back to that with the, with the liberal radicalism case, because uh, I think it's like yeah. the, the problem of altruism yeah, is, is more striking there. Uh, t- Tyler Cohen wrote uh, about quadratic voting. Um, My reservation about this and other voting schemes, such as demand revelation mechanisms, is that our notions of formal efficiency are too narrow to make good judgments about political processes through social choice theory. The actual goal is not to take current preferences and translate them into the right outcomes in some Coasian or Arovian sense. Rather, the goal is to encourage better and more reasonable preferences and also to shape a durable consensus for future uh, belief in the policy. Yeah, what, what do you, did you have any reaction to that? Well, I, I think that it's not a very coherent argument to criticize a technology derived from loosely optimizing condition X to say there's condition Y and it was not designed to optimize condition Y. Hmm. You have to actually argue that it will do worse in achieving condition Y, which is something that, as far as I could tell when I read Tyler's post, he never actually does. And I think there's many good reasons to think quadratic voting would do a better job of achieving a lasting consensus and overall like social engagement better than uh, one person, one vote does. In particular, it allows people to specialize and to have diverse social commitments rather than to be forced into a single coherent notion of the nation and have everyone be like 
equal with regards to that, which I don't think is a good basis for a rich society. I actually think it leads to sort of a Rousseauian coherent, you know, nation that is not really a meaningful concept. Uh, whereas quadratic voting allows for more expression within this collective context of people's rich and diverse social commitments. So I think there's other, I think, important points here, which is that Tyler says that about this collective setting, but when he turns to private goods, he's obsessed with the market and he's all into everyone expressing whatever they want. But if what he said is correct, then why should we have market mechanisms to allocate private goods? Because those are even more subject to that sort of a problem, in my view. In fact, I think in the quadratic voting setting, those issues are much less present because actually we're engaged in some sort of a collective thing and we're weighing in on our different collective commitments. Whereas in a private market, like why should we allocate goods to whatever it is that people happen to demand when all those demands are ultimately just the outgrowth of collective conditions? So I think, uh, I'm not sure whether this would be, would be Tyler's view, but uh, a lot of people might, might think that people have more reasonable or like more more well-considered preferences about like a private goods that they're going to consume, like what kind of car to buy or what, what house to live in than they do about uh, matters of public policy. Because, uh, you know, if, if they buy a bad car, they suffer like, you know, personally, because they, they, it's like the, the, the burden is on them for, for that bad decision. Whereas if they vote for a bad public policy, then overwhelmingly the, the, the burden of that, of perhaps their ignorance or their uh, of their bad foresight is, is on other people. Yeah, but that's all the more reason why you'd want to move to a system like quadratic voting rather than to one person, one vote, because one person, one vote absolutely maximizes the problem you just described. It like literally takes that to the furthest extreme that it could possibly take it by like literally taking the min over everyone of their ignorance, like the max over their ignorance and like assigning as much weight as possible to the person who's maximally ignorant in that way. Whereas quadratic voting actually allows for the revelation of how important and knowledgeable like things are to people. And there's a huge amount of evidence that people would vote if they had the chance to flex more on things that they're more knowledgeable about. Mm. So I think like precisely if you're concerned about that problem is precisely why you should value quadratic voting. So that that, that sounds right. I suppose some people might have the intuition that uh, let's say you You've got this pre-existing problem of a population that just does, does not know a ton about like public policy issues. They've, they've like chosen rationally to be ignorant about these issues because they can't have much effect on them. And even after the impli- uh, even after the application of quadratic voting, each individual in a large population still doesn't uh, can't have that much influence. Even if they spend a lot of voice credits on an issue, they're only a small fraction of the of the total voting pool. But this uh, might encourage. I guess this is another issue that's uh, come up from some critics that they're. Uh, concerned that minority interest groups that really have a have a hobby horse that perhaps they haven't thought about very well uh, would then have perhaps too much influence in in, in the system co- collectively. Do you have any thoughts on that? The evidence that we have from political science is that on almost every issue in almost every social class, there is what Martin Gillens calls a issue public, which is some subset of those people who really care about are informed about and have preferences on that issue that treks a reasonable model of what would be there in, in their interests. But the problem is in many social classes, that's a very small fraction of the population, whereas among the wealthy, it tends to be most people. So I actually think allowing self-revelation of things actually allows you to clear out the noise that's supplied to the preferences of many classes and to get the signal 
from those people. I actually think our current system, by swamping things with so much noise and so much things that are easily influenced by wealth and advertising and stuff like that, basically makes it impossible for the signal from much of society to be heard. We're talking very abstractly here. Is it possible to kind of cash out that, that intuition in like a specific case where you think quadratic voting might make things go better? Yeah. So, for example, if you look at economic issues, there is a relatively small part of working the working class that really understands economic issues and their preferences tend to far better track like what an economist would predict would be the incidence on those people of various policies they tend to be people maybe who have some experience with that particular policy issue or they work in a tax office or something like that they usually don't know about the rest of other economic policy issues but on some issue they really know that issue really really well but the problem is most of their neighbors don't know crap. And so they vote for some, let's say, Republican or whatever, who's going to like really work against their interests because they just don't think about the economic side of stuff at all. And they get advertised to a lot. And that person, if instead their neighbors voted more on local issues or social issues or whatever it was that they actually were more knowledgeable about, the relative magnification of the voice of working class people would actually be far greater than the magnification of the voice of, say, wealthy people who are going to be knowledgeable about everything and not be able to spend their votes on everything, right? So, so, th so this requires people to be more willing to spend their voice credits on issues that they're more informed about rather than perhaps uh, passionate but ignorant about. Well, I mean, the evidence we have also suggests that when you ask people to prioritize or you ask people intensity, that it does a good job of tracking those things that people are most knowledgeable about in surveys. Okay. So uh, there's good reason to think that that would actually be the case. Because you, you could imagine that it could go the other way, that the more informed people become, the more uncertain they are, whereas like the more... The that's, more not, that's not the evidence we have. Okay, interesting. So just empirically, that's not, that's not how it works. Yeah. yeah do, do you have like any concerns about... Uh minority groups in society kind of oh, the kind of the tail wagging wagging the dog if there's like small groups that can save up all of their voice credits to do something that the rest of the population isn't into i suppose that that's compensated for for everyone else by the fact that they get then get a, right. a larger I mean, they, share they of pay, other decisions they pay, they, they pay for those externalities and they actually pay disproportionately so that minority group actually has less overall influence but just mm -hmm. gets an influence on the one issue they care about so i think that from my perspective that's how trade works. It's like saying, suppose some group saves up all of their income in order to buy the best cars in the society and then starves to death otherwise. <laughs> Is that really skin off of their nose or of, off someone else's, you know? Okay, yeah, I think, I think, I think I'm reasonably convinced. Uh, do, do you think that we could uh, use this to make other organizations that currently don't really have voting um, apply voting? So you could, could, for example, like within projects, within corporations or like, most yeah. most organizations we don't use voting and i think part of the reason is that like one person one vote has major flaws that it doesn't consider the, the strength of preferences or indeed like the the, the extent of people's knowledge would, would, would this would like more sophisticated voting systems make it more appealing to use voting in a wider range of contexts i think that's likely and i think that's likely to be one important application in coming years so yeah and i guess that that's a place where you could try it out on a smaller scale and it's like less dangerous if it if it doesn't work as the, as theory says i mean as a general matter i think all of the ideas we'll be talking about today are things that i want to become part of everyday practices before they're ever blessed by a state as some official and extremely important you know part of the social fabric one thing that occurred to me was how do you stop people so let's say uh, there's, there's a minority group that really cares about X. Say so it's got like a gay people who are very passionate about, about gay marriage. 
And there's like other other groups in society that are, are like are opposed to like will have different preferences from that group. But they know that this minority group is going to have to use up lots of their voice credits in order to stop, uh, say, uh, you know, a, a vote banning gay marriage from getting up. How do you stop them from just like putting this vote up again and again and again to kind of exhaust the the voice credits of um, the people of people who they generally disagree with, and so that then they can get up other things because they've like run down all of their, their credits. So, so you can have a endogenous agenda setting mechanism where the agenda is like you only get something up for a vote if there's a certain number of sort of signatures. That's the way that petitions for referenda usually work. And those signatures could be based on voice credits. And so therefore, in order for a troll to do that, they would have to commit a lot of credits, which would wipe them out more quickly than the people they're trying to wipe out would be wiped out by it. Okay, so the idea is there's there's kind of a fixed cost for putting something up to a vote that would rarely make it appealing to try to put up yeah. things just okay i guess depending on where that amount is set it could either be like too discouraging or not discouraging enough right well i mean ultimately that thing should be said equal to whatever the social cost of changing the underlying policy is or something like that and some of the things around liberal radicalism that we're going to be talking about should help reveal that so that set of issues was part of the inspiration for thinking about that hmm. it seems like it doesn't have to. Does it have to be set in proportion to the to the social cost of putting up the the policy? Because you kind of know that it's not going to get up. The point is that you just know that in order to avoid it from getting up, some other group has to spend a lot of voice credits. Well, but the thing is, the other the other group doesn't need to send a lot of voice credits in order to stop it, unless there's already been like a bunch committed to it, right? Because otherwise, like it's basically free to stop it from getting up. It's not actually the case that like in equilibrium, what you were saying is like going to happen, like because like you can't really get some group to spend down to avoid something unless there's a credible threat that it actually passes. And the only way to get a credible threat that it actually passes is for someone who's part of this conspiratorial group to put stuff up. So then unless the conspiratorial group is like the majority of the population, but then it's not really conspiratorial. So anyways, it just yeah. it, that, those dynamics but, just don't actually happen. Like the only way that something like what you're saying can happen is if like people have some false beliefs or if there's some like friction in the system or something like that. So I guess you could have risk aversion on the part of the minority group that they really don't want this thing to, to, to get up. So they like always overspend uh, ahead of time. So there are, I mean, look, there are, there are many, there are many frictions in any system that like one has to like work out experimentally and put in reasonable safeguards against. And I'm not saying that there would be none like that in quadratic voting. Yeah. I just think a lot of these like elaborate discussions are at very least very premature and probably wrong and probably missing other things that will come up. And, you know, it sort of has to be discovered. How how hard do you think it would be for people to come to accept a quadratic voting as, as legitimate? I mean, people who try it out have a really good time with it and mm. say that it generally makes sense to them. I actually think that a harder thing, honestly, for people to come to believe is legitimate is democracy. Because the truth is we don't actually use democracy that much. And quadratic voting in a lot of the organizations that you're describing, the harder thing is to get them to even think about any form of voting at all, you know, much less quadratic voting. But look... Any major social change is going to take a long time. And I think that this one is one whose benefits manifest themselves relatively quickly. And so it should have the ability to spread relatively quickly, but it will spread, you know, still in an organic way through different social groups. And it won't come to be seen legitimate until many people have had experience with it. So, you know, I think that will gradually happen over the course of five or 10 years or 15 years or something like that. 
in a world where uh, people can kind of trade voice credits uh, sometime in the future, do, do you think that it would actually end up being more cost effective for you know a, a wealthy advocate for an issue to, to buy those voice credits than just to like own the New York Times or like to try to engage in like advocacy? Well, and, I don't think people form? should be allowed to trade voice credits across people. That has uh, to be in the system. I see that 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 has to be prevented. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you still have the quadratic function that like dampens people's. Uh, yeah, but but if you but if you buy voice credits from somebody else, then that turns it into a monetized system. But it, but it sounded like you you're open to a monetized system where you might be able to like pay taxes to get votes or something. Potentially, potentially, okay. but, but I that's wouldn't. That's very want far down that. the road. Yeah, that well, some amount down the road, and okay. and then there are things that are further down the road than that, which eliminate most private income, and we can talk about those. <laughs> so, so yeah. Okay, just just before we get to uh, eliminating income. If there's any listeners out there who are very excited by this idea of quadratic voting, and I know there's like definitely some listeners who are very into uh, voting reform in general, kind of what what needs to be done, and like what what organizations or people can they get involved with to push this forward? So there's all sorts of startups that are experimenting with things like this. Startups like Democracy Earth. Uh, you can come to the Radical Exchange Conference. I hope lots of people will come to the Radical Exchange Conference. You can find that at www.radical.lowercasexchange.org. And you'll get exposed to all those there. We would love to explore applications to local democracy, to citizens' petitions. We'd love to find someone in Taiwan. The Taiwanese government wants to experiment with this, but we need someone who's sort of technically inclined in Taiwan who wants to work with the Taiwanese government on this. So that would be a great avenue if anyone wants to do that. So, yeah, we have many avenues like that. Yeah, get involved with radical exchange. The whole goal of it is to you know, do the stuff. We have local groups all over the world that are in a collaborative way trying to experiment with these things. Uh, so you know, join a local chapter or start a local chapter if there doesn't happen to be one in the area you're living in. Uh, what, what kinds of skills do you think are most needed? Like what, what's, what's the ideal kinds of people to, to move this forward? Or is, does, it, does it take all kinds? Well, it, it absolutely takes all kinds. But you know, the types that I want the most are artists and uh, are artists did, of did all types. Did not expect that. Yeah. <laughs> Explain that one. Uh, 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 filmmakers or video game designers, because what's going to make this really compelling for people ultimately is the user experience and the way in which it, the people are able to imagine how a world based on this would be different. And uh, we we need people to help with that sort of thing, even more than we need experiments, because there's lots of experiments that are going on. This makes me think, could, could this be first applied? Uh, could a lot of people get kind of first exposure with this, you know, on Wikipedia or on YouTube or on like Airbnb or when, when they're voting? Okay, or in a video game, yeah. Is- no, but, but yes, I think, I think probably the best commercial application of this, and this is something because I know a lot of your listeners are probably at tech companies. I think the best commercial application of this is to replace reputation systems online. Yeah. Because like right now, you yeah, that, think that about- Yeah, that seems like a no-brainer really. Yeah, I mean, you think about like, Right now, you have like a private tip on Uber, right? Um, yeah. But that's much more credible because it's actually your money. Uh, or you have this review thing, which has like almost no informational content. Um, so why not have something that's in between those where you get voice credits and you can spend them to vote up or down someone's reputation? Yeah, no, I mean, so it, makes, it makes total that, sense. That, that just seems like no brainer to me. So I think that that's one of the most interesting applications. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess... Uh... Like date, dating sites, I guess, have tried to create more credible signal by giving you, you know, these things where it's like you have one vote a day or something for the person who you're most interested in and they've tried to recreate right. this. But but you could all do it in this more fluid, like quadratic right. uh, mechanism that you could then apply to all, all kinds of different different online services. 
All right. With with that uh, throat clearing of uh, quadratic voting out of the way, uh, let's talk about uh, a, a more recent idea that you're uh, even even more excited about, which is uh, liberal radicalism. Or you, you put this into a paper, liberal radicalism: a flexible design for philanthropic matching funds. Uh, a paper that you wrote with uh, Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Vera Ethereum, and uh, Zoe uh, Hits. Zoe Hitzig, yeah. Zoe Hitzig. So yeah, you, you think you're particularly excited about it, and, you, and you're not the only one. Uh, economist Alex Tabarrok uh, called it uh, quite amazing and a quantum leap in public goods mechanism design. So take it away. What's what's the uh, proposal of liberal radicalism? Well, so right now, the way that we organize most of these increasing returns things I was talking about before, all these things we do together in big groups, is either we have like corporate monopolies of various sorts, charities that are totally underfunded because of the free rider problem, or democratic states that are like extremely rigid and have very little relationship to anything like optimal connection to the relevant goods. So I I would submit that like most public goods problems are just like really poorly served at the moment. And what liberal radicalism tries to do is use ideas that sort of came out of quadratic voting rather than to vote for a fixed organization to allow a new principle for the formation of organizations of people. And the notion is based kind of on the idea of matching funds. So in the state of New York or in this New York City in particular, if you contribute to a political campaign less than $100, you get matched six for one, as long as there's enough other contributors and there's some threshold. But you might ask, well, that makes sense. It's sort of like, well, no one really wants to contribute to political campaigns because they're not going to make a difference. So it would be good if we match them because then maybe they'll contribute more. So that makes some sense. And also, like, we've got all this money. We want to give it. Who should we give it to? Should we just give it to the guy who has the best polling ratings? Well, that mm. doesn't sound right. You want someone who actually people are into mm. and willing to contribute to, right? So it all sort of makes sense. But then you ask, okay, why only up to $100? Why some particular threshold? It's all totally arbitrary. So then you could ask, what's actually the optimal system for doing something like that? And it turns out that it's this particular formula, which is the square of the sum of the square roots contributed being the amount that's received by the organization. And that's the liberal radicalism formula. And the idea of liberal radicalism is that we would have a new type of organization that maybe would eventually replace states and corporations that would be based on this principle. So so this formula is that you take everyone's personal contributions, how much personal sacrifice they've been willing to make, then you square root it, you square root each of them, and you add them all up, and then you square the sum of that. Yeah. Um, is there any way of making intuitive why that is the optimal formula? I guess I don't want to get too bogged down on that. People can read the paper. I, I think the closest way that I think of to explain it is from Kant's idea of the categorical imperative. So Immanuel Kant had this idea that probably your philosophically inclined readers are familiar with, that you should act as if by your action, everybody else would act the same way. Now, selfish people won't generally do that. So the question is, could you come up with a mathematical formula that will cause it to be the case that you perceive it as if everybody else does that? And you can think of matching as being a version of that. It's like, oh, I contribute $1. Well, if everybody else contributed $1 when I contributed $1, then I wouldn't have any incentive to free ride because it would just be like I was choosing the tax rate for the whole society, right? And so it turns out that if you just write down the general version of what I just described as a differential equation... You can then integrate that up and you get the liberal radicalism formula. So, yeah, a question I had about this and I guess both uh, and quadratic voting as well is um, 
It sounds like the, the mathematical derivation is not that complicated, although it might not be immediately obvious just from listening to this conversation. Uh, wh- why did it take so long for people to, to come up with, with, with these formulas? Are they just not, uh, have people not been investigating this kind of line of research in general? Well, what, what, I, what I would say is, have you ever read uh, Einstein's principle of special relativity? Uh, I have not. Uh, it, it doesn't use anything beyond uh, basically trigonometry. Okay. And yet, Why did it and take it, so long for people to come up with that? It's kind of everything's you know? obvious in retrospect issue or? Yeah, I mean, sort of. I mean, like, and in fact, the deepest insights are usually mathematically the simplest. The The slightly longer and more convoluted answer is that there was this, I, you know, Vickery had these ideas. And the problem is people took them too serious. Vickery, William Vickery was the guy who came up with the Vickery auction, which was the original seed that ends up leading to something like quadratic voting. Hmm. But the problem is he had this very general solution, but which doesn't really make any sense, like in any practical case. And he pointed out that that was the, that was true. But everybody was so enamored of the fact that his was generally correct that they didn't try to find like versions of it that might actually make sense. Well, and and they, yeah. they, they basically just said, oh, that's correct in general. And then either you were like Tyler and you're like, oh, just dismiss that whole thing. And you're like, ah, too, yeah. too abstract. Yeah. Or you were like, you know, Robin Hanson, and you just said, let's just do it. Let's just do it. You know? <laughs> and like, neither of those was really convincing. So if you like to get something like quadratic voting or like what I, uh, like liberal radicalism, you have to take instead the attitude that yes, that's the right goal. How do we find something that gets 99% of the answer in a way that might be practical and philosophically satisfying and so forth. And that requires a little bit less of just sort of the like optimizing mathematicians, like, you know, obsession with just getting the perfect answer to things and a little bit more of some appreciation for that perspective, but also a broader way of thinking about things. And that does not seem to be in high supply among people who describe themselves as economists. Okay, so backing out to yeah, liberal radicalism specifically, it seems like with, with, with public goods, there's kind of two classic problems. One is that uh, people are inclined to free ride on the contributions of, of other people. I mean, I mean, humans in reality are a bit more psychologically complicated than that. But, but in, yeah. in, in the models, they, they, they don't want to contribute to public goods uh, basically at all because it's all going to benefiting other people. And then you've got this other problem that, in fact, we don't even know how much of the public good would be optimal to supply because it's very hard to get people to, to elicit people's honest preferences about how much they right. how much they would value it uh, a public good existing more or less yeah so which which one of these is is um, liberal radicalism targeted at or is it both yeah I mean Alex Tabarrok says that these things are are different but I don't agree with that like I basically think they're the same problem but I think the fundamental problem is that the system of private property is just not the right system when you have situations like this. I think that's the fundamental issue. And like the system of private property just doesn't make sense when you have increasing returns things because it treats something that whose value is really created by this sort of collective process as something that belongs to individuals. And then individuals are going to try to get as much of that collective thing as they can to take it away. And that's basically the free rider problem. But it's not really like an abstract problem. It's a problem that comes out of the system of private property. Uh, so if you had a public good that had declining rather than increasing returns, uh, I guess, or, or is it is it the nature of public goods? That, that it wouldn't of... be a public good. But... Because the public good has the property, right, that if you supply it to N people on a per person basis, it's cheaper than supplying it to N over two people. 
right? So that's yeah. what makes it increase in return. On a, a per-person, I see, I see. So it becomes more and more efficient the larger the population. Yeah. Okay, so so I guess then you're saying it it uh, deals with both of these issues. It both gets people to it, it both gets people to uh, reveal their honest preferences for how much they value a public good, and it then gives them a reason to personally contribute. Well, yeah, I mean another way of putting it is that eliminating private property is the source of the contributions. So the issue of people not contributing, but people is might sort of be a little bit alarmed at this uh, eradicating uh, private property. What what, uh, what what do you mean well, by well, that? Well, so liberal radicalism reveals the right amount of the public good that should be supplied, but it doesn't actually supply most of the funds that are necessary. I see. Those funds have to come from elsewhere. Taxes or something. And so the question is, well, yeah, you could call them taxes. I don't really like even that term. I mean, the point is like things shouldn't be private property. Like most things shouldn't be private property because most of the value associated with them doesn't actually come from things that one individual did. It came from a social process that created that value. Like you think about what do you value? You value an apartment, but do you value an apartment anywhere? If I put it in the middle of like a desert, would you value the apartment? No, you value the apartment in a community. So most of that value actually belongs to the community, not to like you, the apartment owner, right? And so like, it just, it's not logical. It just doesn't cohere to like think of most of like stuff as being private property in, unless you, you know, like in the middle of the desert, maybe that could be private property. That's fine. But, you know, in, in a civilization, that doesn't really make any sense. Okay. So unfortunately, we, we skipped over the, the the first chapter of the book, which might make that a little bit clearer. I could, yeah. maybe, maybe we'll get to talk about that more. Maybe we'll have time or otherwise I'll, yeah. I'll stick up links to, to other people who can explain your, your view on private property a bit more. But um, yeah. yeah, we've been being quite abstract here. Maybe could we go through kind of a worked example of how uh, this in practice would like allow us to provide a specific public good and like imagine one person kind of contributing more or less in this, uh, in, in this framework and what their incentives are? Yeah. So the idea is you know, suppose we're all giving money again to a political candidate to campaign for elective office. If I give one more dollar, imagine we're all homogeneous. There's like 100 people who are contributing to this person. Under this mechanism, what happens is if I contribute one dollar, the mechanism matches $99. Now, that shows you why you need money from the outside in order to do that <laughs> matching, right? I love but the, notion is, the notion is then that we will all choose a level such that if we could each choose to like tax each other for it, mm. we would choose that level rather than a level which is just derived from like what I individually want to contribute. Okay, so it seems like kind of the larger the population uh, of people who are affected by this or, or who are contributing some amount, the, the, the more of other people's kind of resources that I can then command by giving a little bit more of my own money to this thing. And indeed, the, the amount could be like vast, right? Right. Because because then it's less and less your private. Well, the thing is, it's less and less your private project then. And it belongs more and more to other people. So you shouldn't be able to command other people's resources for something that's just selfish, but for something that's a collective product and that doesn't just belong to you. You should be able to. Draw in resources to fund something like that. Okay, so let's say that we were all Americans are using this to figure out how much to supply the public good of the military that defends the US. So you've got yeah. like, I guess, 200 million or something adults who might be participating in this. Yeah. And they're all deciding how much to privately give. If I give an extra dollar, like how much more than do other people have to pay through some like matching amount or some, some like taxing amount? It well, seems like if, it could if, be huge, if, right? If everyone is giving one dollar... Hmm then the answer is, yeah, some huge amount. And if you're really, really tiny, 
in the whole population, like, so you're actually giving a tiny amount, you're increasing your contribution by a small amount, really increases everyone's by a large amount. So th this is one thing I said before, which is that this sort of mechanism could like oversolve public good problems. Yeah. Because the thing is like right now we have all these like things of like making you nationalistic and making you have to like have all these loyalties to imagine communities that we get to get people to like not free ride. But one way to think about this is like you wouldn't want to immediately do this in its full force for, you know, the whole world because like there already are solidarities like that. But those become less necessary. These like fictions, these imagined communities become less necessary under this mechanism because even just like a rational thinking through of the issues would lead you to the right decision. So like I actually view that as in the long term an advantage, though in the short term it requires you to apply caution and, you know, doing these things because I mean, it's sort of like saying if you're wearing a bunch of, you know, heavy coats because it's really cold outside and you come into like, you don't want to immediately have someone put you into a sauna, but it still might be nice to have a sauna available to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's like how I, how I think about these things, you know, it's like they could solve the problem too much because we have other like adaptations to deal with the problem. But it, it seems like, what you can do if someone has coats is like have them in a relatively cool room first and then they start taking off their coats and then they step into the sauna. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so uh, I think we can do that with these types of mechanisms as well. And how to get that exactly right is going to take a lot of experimentation and learning. But it seems to me like a huge advance that we now have a solution to the actual problem we were trying to solve rather than this fake solution that capitalism was to a problem that we weren't trying to solve, which was this issue of dealing with decreasing returns. Okay, so so to just uh, walk people through this a little bit more slowly, let's say that we're all trying to decide yeah, how large should the US military be, and everyone yeah. everyone has to contribute their private uh, funding, and then we're gonna like match it out of, I guess, some other source of funding. Uh, yeah. Tax revenue is like the, the, the one that we'll do now, but you're imagining like yeah. a different future where money is raised differently. Yeah. Now, the, the, the case in which the amount that I personally contribute then uh, uh, well, then, then if everyone uh, does the same, then it like leads to the optimal total amount is if I think purely selfishly, if I give an extra dollar, if I contribute an extra dollar to this, does the benefit that I get from the extra dollar that I'm giving and then all of the matched funding, I exceed right. the cost to me personally. So I have to be like perfectly selfishly just trading off only the benefits and cost to myself. Right. So the, the normal thing is like I give a dollar to the, to the military, I derive practically no benefit. I derive like one three hundred millionth of the benefit of like the extra protection right. that the military provides. But in this, because everyone else, or cause like there's so much extra match funding coming from elsewhere, I, I'm like incentivized to give the correct amount. Cause I give $1 right. and in fact, like $200 million goes to it. And then I get one, 200 minutes roughly of the benefit. Right. And so it all cancels out. The problem is that like someone who's like slightly ideologically driven or someone altruistic will then like overgive and then it will, it will right. end up oversupplying all of these, all of these things. Uh, right. and, and of course you're saying we've developed all these mechanisms like altruism and yeah, like, uh, giving people other like non-selfish reasons to contribute to to these things yeah. in order to solve this coordination problem. But now that we've got that, it's going to like end up over, people end up over contributing in this mechanism right. and kind of break it. Yeah. Are there any applications where you think uh, because we don't have like non-selfish reasons to contribute that this would work straight out of the box? I think that the more that you're dealing with cases where currently public goods are really underprovided, this would work the best. Like I think one good example of that is just like anything where the people who you're benefiting are very distant from you socially. So maybe like global public goods are of various sorts mm. or various environmental goods that don't line up neatly with state boundaries, like rivers that cut across countries. 
or things like this. I guess you might worry that, yeah, like people who are ideologically globalist could, could, could end up exploiting this and then other people wouldn't want to participate because, you know, I'll be like, oh, well, I care about foreigners equally. Uh, and this mechanism is designed on the assumption that I don't care about them practically at all. So then I like yeah. get a whole lot of money and then command a whole lot of resources. I suppose that's, yeah. I guess suppose you could try to put the brakes on that even more by limiting well, people's contributions the, the, the or something. Other, the other thing is that like this mechanism, actually, you can put a parameter on there that like tamps down its effects yeah. and that makes it cheaper as well, which in practice you're going to have to do anyways in the near term. Mm -hmm. And that may not perfectly address this issue because like the extent to which people are altruistic may be heterogeneous, but on average, it might do a pretty good job. So presumably there's going to be like some kind of matching factor, some kind of... so. The, uh, this, the, 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 the funding that goes through this thing is kind of proportional to this like output of this like uh, square of the sums of the of the of, of the roots. Um, does it matter? Does it doesn't matter what that factor is? Because it seems like if it's very high, I want to contribute more. If it's low, I don't want to contribute so much. And so it's quite sensitive. Well, so the optimal thing, if if everyone is perfectly selfish, is one. Uh, it should be the full amount. But if people aren't perfectly selfish, then you might want to tamp that down. Um, but also just to make the, like, if you only have a certain amount of matching funds, you're going to have to set that less than one anyway. And the guarantee is that if people are perfectly selfish and you set that number, let's say to one tenth, then the like underfunding factor, if people are perfectly selfish is one tenth. But remember that the underfunding factor under just normal contributions with private property or whatever is one over N. Yeah. So this is still like a dramatic <laughs> improvement, even if you don't set it equal to one. So I guess we've got these other mechanisms for providing public goods now, like just tax revenue and then like the government funds research or something like that. Yeah. I mean, so th that's got obvious problems with it. Yeah. But I suppose this does as well. Like, uh, do, do you think that it would uh, actually uh, work work better than this than these other kludgy solutions that we've come up with? Well, I mean, look, everything needs to be learned by experimentation. But my general view is it's sort of like if you kind of invent the right solution for a problem it's got to help you make progress towards solving that problem at some level. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think it's sort of like, you know, if someone invents fusion, like that doesn't immediately mean that you like replace all power on earth with fusion. In fact, it may take a hundred years to get it working, but it certainly seems like a good thing to focus a lot of attention on. Well, I guess it gives you like a lodestar or something that's theoretically yeah. optimal that you can then like approximate with more practical, practical approaches. Well, I mean, and, and the other thing is I don't even think it's just... Like, I actually think this is really practical. I think the question is really just like, do, is it too powerful? And it's, I think it's very analogous to fusion. It's like, yes, fusion can generate a lot of energy. The problem is it can also explode. So the question is, can we like contain that energy? But like, it seems like a really, like it would be really dumb not to try to like use that in some way. Now, maybe it turns out after a long time, you it really can't be contained and we're just stuck. But, you know, if you have a huge source of energy, it's, it seems like it's like a pretty promising direction to work on, you know? Yeah. So can, can you just weaken it a whole lot? Like, I guess reducing the scaling well, factor is a way of weakening it, right? That, that's the way to weaken it. I yeah. see. Okay. That's interesting. So I guess your, your hope would be that then like people's altruism and the fact that like there's this discount applied to it where it's not one for one, that, that you'd hope that they would cancel out. Well, I, I don't think that's a perfect solution because... Well, because some people might be more altruistic than others and you might not get this rescaling right and whatever. But again, as I said, it just it seems like I'd want to do a lot of work on like being confident that there's no way to get that thing working mm -hmm. before I would give up on it, given that it like is actually the solution to the problem, like the core <laughs> problem of political economy. Like so like it's like if you have one thing that's like actually the solution to the core problem of political economy and then you've got like another system 
which is like a solution to something that we know is like an edge case. And you're like, okay, well, we're not sure how to get this other thing working perfectly. We haven't even really tried it at all. And we've got this other thing that's like been working really poorly for years. And it's obvious theoretically why it should be working very poorly. And we fo- we're going to focus all our attention on just maintaining that system rather than experimenting with this other one. That just doesn't seem like a very good allocation of social attention and resources, you know. So, so uh, both quadratic voting and um, liberal radicalism have this uh, problem of collusion where like one person kind of pays someone else to contribute for them. Yeah. Uh, and so the same way that you have, say, issues with uh, political contributions where someone might try to donate, uh, get around like spending limits by giving right. to someone else. So you got this. Yeah. So, so you have to police that, I suppose. But that, that seems possible. Are, are there other like gamings that um, you would worry about where like, I don't know, people try to split one project into two and make like get more money that way? Or so like- that, that can't that can't work. That actually makes things worse in, um, quad- in liberal radicalism. I think the key aspect is this thing about collusion over altruism, pretending to be multiple people. I think that's that's the central issue. Yeah. Are there any other practical weaknesses that you think need to be figured out before it can be applied at any big scale? Look, nothing should be applied at a big scale until you experiment (laughs) with it, because you can never know uh, what the practical weaknesses are until you see it. But those are the main ones that we foresee. So, so another possible kink that I foresaw with this is that there's kind of a, a, a fixed cost to like noticing the existence of like a, a public goods project and deciding how much to give and then bothering to make a payment. And that yeah. uh, in as much as people are making small payments, these kind of micro payments to contribute that, that that could end up being quite significant and end up, I guess, like uh, causing people to give like larger amounts to fewer projects or something like that could be a bit distortionary. Have you thought about that? It's interesting. I mean, I, I'm not totally sure whether that shows up here because a tiny contribution can make a huge impact. Like, especially like if you're literally contributing zero to something and you start contributing a positive amount, Mm. that's like, that's the area where you like have a huge marginal impact. So I'd have to model it out to figure out if that's actually a problem. I'm not totally sure it is. I guess I'm imagining, let's say that you're planning to give $10 uh, to to this project. And so that's your like personal sacrifice. Imagining that someone's being like, again, completely selfish as in the model, but like that the the time that it takes to make the payment is like cost $10 worth of your time. Then in a sense, uh, there's like this distortion where you might like not give to as many different projects. Oh, but but the thing is that if you're going to give $10, the actual amount the project's going to receive is going to be way more than that. Yeah, but but but, but so, in this case, it sounds like you're relying yeah, on but, people's but altruistic preferences to like, which I mean, admittedly they would they would have, but so it seems. Uh, yeah, I mean, to the extent that there are fixed costs, that that will censor some of the smaller contributions for sure. Yeah, my guess is that that's pretty small relative to the other problems involved. But yeah, yeah. I guess it's like um. That's a problem that I think I guess would show up in the maths where you imagine these totally sociopathic, selfish individuals, but then in reality, probably this is actually one of the issues that doesn't arise because of the altruism that people have. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah is there anything else you wanted to talk about on this one before before we move on? Well, I mean, the one thing I'd just say is like beyond the like mechanism and the ways it's practical in the near term, hmm. to the extent you're thinking about the long term, this I think leads to a very different vision of what the world would look like. Like it leads to a vision of the world that one of my friends yesterday described as anarcho-syndicalist or something like that, where rather than having corporations or states, there's just these emergent and constantly morphing public good providing organizations and maybe hierarchies of them. And it would, I think, be quite a different world. So I think like one of the most interesting aspects of this is actually just fleshing out all the philosophy and philosophical implications and what it means for things like intergenerational public goods, for example. So I I think, you know, even just as an idea, it has a lot still to be developed. 
Yeah. So uh, as I said in the intro, it's kind of you have a background both as a socialist and and as a Randian or libertarian. And I guess yeah. this is an attempt to uh, to synthesize those ideas into having kind of some self organizing uh, way that like uses people's selfishness to provide public goods um, in 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 a novel form. Do, do you think that the yeah. that the libertarians or the socialists would would love this idea, or would they be kind of horrified? I think especially when you start well, talking about eliminating when you start talking about eliminating private property, there's one group that you're alienating. Um, at least. Well, may- maybe, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that people have been attracted to the movement pretty uniformly across the political spectrum. And there are ways of talking about it that are very libertarian. Hmm. And Alex Tabarrok was obviously interested. Yeah. And there are ways of thinking about it that are very socialist. And you could call it anarcho-syndicalist. And precisely what I like about it is that it offers a perspective that's genuinely syncretic, that if we actually take the ideals of every side even more seriously, maybe they actually end up in the same place. How, how do the socialists feel about uh, this This kind of, I mean, well, I guess to some extent you're, you're rejecting neoliberal economics, but at the same time, you're kind of applying neoliberal thinking tools to like come up with these with these mechanism designs, which like rely on people kind of like uh, yeah, being like homo economicus and, and like trying to like maximize their welfare. Uh, do, do you know, how, how do people on the on the left uh, react to that? Do, do, do they reject this whole framework or do they kind of embrace the way that you're coming up with like ways of providing public goods? So I've sort of assumed in talking to you that I'm basically talking to a bunch of neoliberal libertarian, like rationalist type people on average. I think it's a and bit so more mixed talk- than that. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but that, that's how I <laughs> that's how I've been talking about it. But <laughs> I speak about these things in a different way. Yeah. When I speak to different folks, and I hope folks will learn to translate across different <laughs> ways of thinking about these things. But I think there are ways of talking about this, which basically, you know, say that it's just formalizing anarcho-syndicalism in a way that was always the big impediment to that. Have you been surprised by, uh, by like, who's more or less enthusiastic about, about these ideas? Well, one aspect I've been surprised by is, like, how much enthusiasm there is from the African-American community. I wasn't inspect, expecting that. And I wasn't expecting how much there came from the blockchain community either initially, uh, actually. So, yeah, there have been a number of surprises in the core constituencies we've we've ended up having. Another thing that really surprised me is especially given how male-dominated the tech world is, hmm. I would say like a majority of the people involved are women. And so like the sort of people that these things speak to has been just much broader than the sorts of things that I'm used to attracting as audiences prior to going down this route. Yeah, that's 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 super interesting. Uh, do you want to talk about like um, maybe are there any particular applications that African Americans or, or women seem to be seem to be drawn to that that makes them excited about this? Well, I, I think it's more the way that you talk about things and mm-hmm. and the things that this invites. I mean, the notion of moving beyond systematic you know past systems of oppression, the notion of focusing on the social impact and the change that this can bring about rather than just the technicality of it all, I think is inviting to a much wider range of people. All right. So yeah, again, if, if a listener's kind of excited by this idea uh, that their eyes are lighting up, um, who can they get involved with? Who should who should they call? And what should they donate well, to? Well, even? Look, the, whole, the whole notion of Radical Exchange Foundation is to try to coordinate activities around this. And, uh, you know, getting involved in that community is just opening a whole world of uh, stuff around this. Um, And we'd love people to donate to the Radical Exchange Foundation. But if there are particular projects that interest you that you find through that community, 
I'm sure some of them need donations and others of them are more commercial and need investments because all this stuff should improve efficiency. So we do think it can grow within a capitalist society, even though its principles are quite different. So uh, you were having a conference recently, if I've been reading your, your Twitter feed correctly. Um, is, there, is there another event that people can... No, the, the, the big event is coming in March, March, in March 22nd to 24th okay. in Detroit. It's called Radical Exchange. And uh, yeah, tickets just went on sale. So I, okay. I definitely encourage people to attend. Uh, and uh, if people are interested in sponsoring, that would be great. If people are interested in donating to the organization, it would be great. Mm-hmm. We're doing all sorts of things on uh, the experimentation front, on the edu- you know education and communication front, on the further development of ideas like this front, all that sort of stuff. Okay, so I wanted to, to move on from these specific, uh, specific ideas to think about. It seems like you have... A specific view about like how how you're going to change the world and and how we ought to be thinking about changing yeah. society. Uh, do you want to just uh, yeah lay lay that out? Anything that you, that you haven't said already? Yeah, well, so I just read a book by Hannah Arendt called On Revolution hmm. that uh, I really love and that it accords a lot with my perspective. So she compares the French and American revolutions, and she argues that really what made the American Revolution work was that basically under the tutelage of King George, all these people came and they organized themselves into these local democratic communities. Mm. And that came to be the way that they lived and what made sense of their lives long before they ever even considered throwing off the yoke of the king. And so the king provided the authority, but the power actually lay in democracy. And then all the revolution had to do is just change authority to be more consistent with the nature of power that had already come to exist. Whereas in the French Revolution, the power structure was all centered around the king and everything below that was very disorganized. And so what ended up rebelling against the king was something very disorganized. And so therefore these disorganized people couldn't really demand that you put that disorganized structure in charge of everything. Instead, all they demanded was just some concrete goal that they wanted. And that left a power vacuum into which a very centralized thing entered. And so I think my view of social change is that we actually need to build the society. We have to build the legitimacy that we then eventually want to be christened by the state or replace the state rather than to, from the top down, impose this sort of thing. Interesting. Okay. So it's kind of a radical incrementalist view where we're like, well, in the long term, we want to like dramatically change social institutions, but we want to do that by like building smaller scale organizations initially and then like figuring out how to organize them in new and better ways and then building up from there. Is that the idea? Right. But that has to be done in conversation with the ideals of a different society, because without being in conversation with the ideals of a different society, like there's no motive force for all those experiments. So like, you know, one analogy I often give is, you know, Jeff Bezos wanted to build the everything store, but he built Amazon books like as the first step towards that. But without the vision of the everything store, Amazon books wouldn't have worked. So all the interesting things in life happen in the interstitial space between abstract goals Hmm. and concrete manifestations of those goals. And if you miss either part of that, you sort of miss out on everything that's interesting. Do do you have any um, other like historical examples where you're like, yes, this is the way that like social change should be done and the way that like you're, you're hoping to do it yourself? Well, I think Scan- the Scandinavian countries were very similar. They, they very much built up all these rich, diverse civil society things so that when they then had like a quote socialist state, the socialist state never thought, oh, I'm just going to centralize all the power. 
you know, mm. instead it empowered these social institutions that had already come to exist to support the flourishing of society. Whereas socialist societies that tried to start from very disorganized things and just impose them from the top down uh, ended up with very bad outcomes. How do you feel about uh, kind of the history of Britain? Went from like having a monarchy to you know, a parliamentary constitutional democracy uh, without having a revolution. Well, Britain is a very good example of this because so the origins of British parliamentary democracy were something called the Witton. Do you know what that is? Uh, it rings a bell, but yeah, I don't. Yeah, so so it was this set of knights that went out and surveyed the countryside and were, were sent out by the king. And then they would come back and they would talk to the king about what they had seen so he could make better decisions. And then it, things started to get too complicated for the king to listen to all the discussions. So they would then have one of them who would give a report to the king of their discussions. And then the king would make a decision based on that. And that person you know, eventually evolved into the prime minister. And the discussions uh, started being summarized ever more tightly into like a series of recommendations for the king, which the king would generally just approve. And then, of course, the French invade and it gets, starts saying, well, what is this thing? Well, it's the place where they speak, the parliament. You know what I mean? And so you see how like basically an institution grows up and then its legitimacy is confirmed by things like the Glorious Revolution, right? But the institution already pre-exists its formalization. So you want kind of yeah organic change before things are before things are formalized. Yeah. Well, it's like people have particular goals, and then they, then they find a way that, to do it that works, and then it's like formalized. Yeah. Do Do, do you feel like social institutions are, are more more static than than they used to be? I guess like one, one concern that one might have about uh, like this being the most effective thing to work on. Uh, could be that it's just going to be very hard to get these things applied because like social institutions are now like too formalized or too sclerotic. Um, and so even if you have like great ideas for reform, you're not going to be able to get them applied very widely. I would say actually the opposite. I don't view the impetus for these things as being so much that just we need this change as the fact that if we don't supply these sorts of alternative ways to solve the problems that we're currently facing, mm. much worse solutions are rapidly being proposed yeah. and could be highly destabilizing. So I actually think the impetus for providing these solutions, even beyond the fact that we'll eventually need this change, is that if we aren't starting to supply this in an organic way, someone else will impose from the top down something that's far worse. Why do you think that there's kind of uh, so much political discontent uh, at, at at the moment? Um, do, do you, I guess um, Martin Gurry, who I mentioned uh, on the on the yeah. show recently, explains it in terms of information technology changing, such that it's like easier for people to find out ways in which their leaders are like unsatisfying or, or not performing as well as they they used to claim. And it's easier for people also to to organize amongst themselves um, movements to oppose whoever you know whoever is the ruling class or whoever has power at a particular point in time. Uh, do you think that's the reason or is it like some 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 other thing going it, on? That might be part of it, but I think it's pretty unlikely that that is like the majority of what's going on. Hmm. Because if you actually look at the timing in relationship to these developments, the, the move towards the far right was way before the emergence of the Internet. Like it started in like the early 90s and a large part of it was accomplished before social media came about. And then the last bit of it came about in the social media era. And of course, we noticed the last bit of it, because that's what like actually causes people to start winning elections. <laughs> but the thing is, like, that's not actually most of the phenomenon. Okay, yes, I wouldn't have thought that um, the move to the far right started in the in the early 90s. Um, what, what, what do you yeah, think you should about? read Cass Muddy's 
work and actually just look at the historical rise of the vote share of the far right. The National Front, like, for example, in France, made it into the second round of the presidential election in in the contest between Chirac and uh, Le Pen pair. So this stuff is really not. And, and, and if you look at polarization in the United States, most of that occurred basically starting with Newt Gingrich yeah. and was accomplished by the mid 2000s. You know, and then, of course, you throw a match onto that kindling uh, with the Great Recession and and so forth. But I don't think that that's the main phenomenon. Um, so, yeah, what 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 do you think is is causing that then? Well, I mean, I think dramatic increases in inequality, dramatic falls in growth rates and a general sense of people that the promises that liberalism made them are are failing. And and technology is part of that, but not just in terms of the way it enables things, but in terms of the way in which it's caused people to feel increasingly lonely, isolated, and, uh, you know, a reduced sense of agency. So it's interesting, in, in, in uh, Guri's book, he uh, points to a whole bunch of data showing that kind of the people who are the most insurgent, the people who are like most likely to take to the streets and like vote for... Uh, uh, candidates that in in the past would have been uh, not as successful uh, tend to be doing well economically and tend also to be like quite socially connected. That it's not kind of the people who are struggling uh, in society or or like most depressed who are most well, politically active. I, I, I'd have to see his particular information, but I'm I'm very skeptical of that being the overall weight of what the social scientific community would say about this. The single biggest predictor of swings to Donald Trump that people have found. Um, versus Mitt Romney was uh, basically the aggregate um, connections of people on the Facebook graph being very local and not externally connected. So I, I don't I don't look. There are definitely Republicans who voted for Trump, right? But most of them, most of the Trump enthusiasts or those who were won over by Trump relative to other Republicans, were not people who who are uh, well connected or high income. Okay, yeah, this is super complicated. So I'll probably have to get uh, someone who studies this specifically on, on, the, on the show to talk about it at, at some point. Do you, do you worry that kind of politics as a sense today is kind of too anti-intellectual to be interested in these kind of, uh, in, the, in these reforms that are like justified in a very abstract, like economics sort of way? Well, I don't think that that's what's going to persuade people. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that we can't build a praxis of a relationship that helps people appreciate these things through their experiences and through art, which is why I put so much emphasis on art earlier. Mm. I, I think we can build that. I think that we need to build that. But, uh, but what I definitely am against, and maybe we'll turn to this later, is something which um, builds a politics that only wants to speak or only respects ner- nerdy and like mathematically inclined ways of approaching issues. I think that's a huge mistake. Yeah. Okay. Uh, go, go go into that as a as a, as a nerd who speaks that way. Um. Uh, yeah. What What are your reservations? Well, look. I I I think that you know the rationalist community, for example, which I assume many of your listeners are sympathetic towards that community. Some certainly. Uh, uh, has built itself a politics and a practice of sort of obsessive focus on communicating primarily with and relating socially primarily to people who also agree that whatever set of practices they think defines rationality are like the way to think about everything. And I think that that is extremely dangerous as a tendency uh, within a broader society, because I think, A, it's not actually true that most useful knowledge that we have comes from those methods. 
Um, there's lots of useful knowledge that comes in other ways. And if you cut yourself off from that other useful knowledge, you're actually missing most of the relevant information. And B, it's fundamentally anti-democratic as an attitude. And the problem with anti-democratic attitudes is they often start to mutate very quickly into anti-democratic politics. Because if you think that the only people who have access to the truth are philosopher kings, it becomes hard to escape the conclusion that philosopher kings should rule. Because like, you're just going to be enormously frustrated by the fact that you can't get other people to understand your arguments. So like Robin Hanson has this book, Elephant in the Brain, which has some interesting things in it, but I think ultimately is like a long complaint that people aren't interested in talking about politics in the way that I am interested in talking about politics. And that really annoys me. And like, I, I would submit that to someone who has that attitude, you should say, perhaps consider talking about politics in a different way. You might find that other people find it easier to speak to you that way. It's sort of like if you have a club of Esperanto speakers and they spend most of the time that they are, are spending talking in Esperanto, speaking about how annoying it is that no one else speaks Esperanto, you might consider suggesting to them to speak a language other than Esperanto if, if that's their primary frustration. You know what yeah. I mean? Unless there's some like enormous gain that they can demonstrate you know, clearly that they're getting from speaking Esperanto. So I don't, I don't really participate in like the politics discussions in, in, in the rationality community. Uh, can you like, are there any, are there any examples uh, where you think like p people are going wrong and, and how you think they ought, they ought to do things differently? Well, like, you know, as a general matter, um, like, so there, there's something called neo-reaction, which yeah. uh, is a very obscure and a lot of people aren't aware of it, but it's actually had a lot of influence on a number of quite wealthy people and filtered into politics in various ways. And it's basically a politics that is built around um, the notion that basically there should be a small elite of people who own property and sort of control power through that property because, you know, the masses aren't capable of understanding or solving or whatever various types of questions. And I think that that politics, even though most people in this rationalist community would reject that kind of politics, I think there is a natural tendency if you have that set of social attitudes to have your politics drift in that direction, because like that sort of social practice of only associating with people who have that, you know, a way of approaching knowledge tends to lead you to be frustrated with everybody else's politics and therefore to want to so like if you're socially anti-democratic the chances that you're going to become politically anti-democratic seem to me to be much higher. It's interesting because I think of myself as uh, having the view that like there's some people who are much more informed about politics and have much more sensible views about, you know, what legislation ought to be passed. Uh, yeah. I guess like in some sense, I'm like part of a part of an elite that's like unusually educated about these issues. Um, yeah. But like when it comes to like nothing is more like appalling to me than neo-reactionary politics. I like have yeah. practically no sympathy with it. Yeah. Uh, what, what's what's going on there? Am I just like part of a different, like somewhat? Like well, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying everyone or I'm like no social tendency is absolute or yeah. constant or whatever. But I think that as a empirical matter, we have seen like a very large number of people enter into the rationalist community with politics similar to what you're saying hmm. and gradually drift in the direction of neo-reactionary politics. And so and, and there's a like pretty simple theory of why that might happen. And it seems to empirically happen quite a bit. So, like, it seems to me that, like, the combination of that empirical evidence and the, the theory explaining it 
would tend to lead me to suggest that people who don't want their politics to drift in that direction or who find that reprehensible might consider changing their practices and not just resisting that political inclination. So, so to play uh, devil's advocate here for a second, yeah. uh, like obviously yeah. I have like no, no sympathy with, with the new reactionary view, but yeah. it seems like uh, it, it is just true that if you start looking at like public opinion surveys, it's the case that many voters are like misinformed about many empirical issues. And then like they, they support policies that seem, uh, I don't know, to like most people who've studied uh, like the, the topic to be like bad yeah. ideas. And yeah. so there is this like this kind of this, this kernel of truth that like, at least, like democracy as it functions now, is uh, like quite a, quite a strange way of making decisions. In a sense, uh, yeah. like, like there's other there's other reasons why we organize it this way to prevent like oppression and 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 to like distribute yeah. power more broadly. That, that that's very valuable. But it's like, do you, do you want to kind of take on that 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 like attitude? Of, well, uh, Rob, where do you live? Uh, I live in uh, California. How long have you been living where you're currently <laughs> living? Uh, two years. How much do you know about the candidates for local office? Uh, I know that uh, the Republican was a practical Nazi. Uh, <laughs> my congressional seat that was particularly bad. Uh, I mean, I can't vote. No, no, but I, I, no I mean, yeah. I mean the really local office. I mean, like the oh, teachers' I mean, board nothing, or nothing. whatever. I, I can't vote, so I, otherwise I might know. But yeah, no, I, I know, I yeah, know nothing so about them. I know nothing about my local candidates either. So the notion that there are a class of people who are just epistemically crap, hmm. I think is is just wrong. I think the answer is that people focus on different things because they are adapted to different areas. Yeah. And yes, I absolutely believe that there should be division of labor mm. and that people should be allowed to opt into things that they care more about and opt into things that they care less about. But I think that the notion that some people are epistemically great and other people are epistemically crap is just really wrong and deeply problematic. Yeah. And I think that, that that what we need is a system that allows people to elect into the things that they have something to add to, which is what quadratic voting allows, and elect out of things that they think are less. But things, but establishing some sort of clear or elite-driven hierarchy that rather than people electing into certain things and electing out, that like some group of people decides they know and they are going to have the power and hold it, I think is deeply misled and doesn't correspond to my empirical experience of reality, which is that on most things relevant to the world, I'm an idiot. It's just that there are some issues that I've devoted my life to on which I think I know better than others do. And I hope that they'll value my perspective and that I'll learn something from their perspective as well. Yeah. So I think that that goes quite a long way. Like, yeah, the, the main reason... Well, yeah, I think the, the key driver of people having bad ideas in politics is that they've spent, they've dedicated very little time to it, to informing themselves most of the time. And it makes total sense that people should specialize. Yeah, that there should be some people who focus on, because it's like, we can't all be informed about everything. It's impossible. And we, people have got their lives to live too. So it's like some people specialize in like learning about this. Some people specialize in learning about that topic. Now, but it does still seem that there's this issue that like some people are just like less intelligent or like they're, or they're never going to make the effort to, to inform themselves. And, and yet they will still be very keen on, on, on voting. And that that could, well, that could, that could, that could add, add some noise to the, to the system. Well, I mean, I, my, my guess is most of the time when you have people like that, you actually find that there's a lot of really interesting and intelligent things that they're bringing to the conversation that your perspective didn't include. That's usually what I find. In fact, I've learned way more personally from interacting with my colleagues who are the people of this country and in Europe who I've been talking to about this book than I have interacting with the intellectual elites I usually interact with. Mm. I made way more intellectual progress 
And, you know, like the intellectual elites who are so great at all this stuff didn't think Donald Trump was going to win. They thought neoliberalism was just fine. They were missing a lot of shit. And, and, and you want to even say at the intellectual level, like all this talk about community that's been out there in the world and people's complaint for years, I think it's a really good way of putting the stuff that I was saying about increasing returns. And what have economists been doing? They've been focusing on the 5%. So like, where is the manifest stupidity of the population? Is it in the among the economists who are the experts? Or is it among, I mean, I just think that like, it's precisely this attitude of being, of like persistent epistemic superiority that leads people into actually going down intellectual cul-de-sacs and not making progress on the most important problems. And I think if people actually had a more of a democratic spirit in their conversations, they would actually be making a lot more intellectual progress than they would in the in the current, uh, you know, self-imagination. So it, it, there's like two different reasons that you could uh, like having this kind of democratic spirit and wanting to distribute power. One would be like on, on principle, you just think that it's like bad to concentrate power or that like yeah, elitism or like hierarchy is like un, un, unappealing in principle. The other is that uh, just as an empirical matter, information is very widely distributed. And in fact, like uh, even people who, who, you know, don't have a great education or whatever are in fact, like uh, bring a lot of like knowledge to the table uh, when, yes. when they're able to contribute. Uh, yeah. Are, are you like, so, I thought that you were going to like justify it on the first grounds, but it sounds like you just- think, No, I'm justifying no, it on the second ju ground. Just in practice, like ordinary voters, like actually have a lot of value to contribute to the, to the system. Yeah. yeah. There's a wonderful book called Seeing Like a State that I recommend to you and to all your listeners. <laughs> I've read it. By, you've read it? James <laughs> I'm, I'm, C. Scott. I'm a huge fan. You should, you should read his yeah. new book. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm about to finish it, actually. I'm, uh, against I'm against the grain. It was, I think it was almost my favorite book of last year. 90% yeah. of the way through it right now. It's amazing, yeah. Um, yeah, it's very good. And like what I think he points out, it, it's very similar to Hayek's point, that there's a lot of knowledge out there. And people like a lot of libertarians sort of are into that when they hear it in Hayek, but when they hear about politics, suddenly they think that there's no knowledge out there. <laughs> and I think that that's nuts. Like, I think that politics is just like all these other things. There is lots of local information out there. And in fact, I don't even think there's much of a distinction between politics and economics. I think it's, it's the same basic problem that when high modernists, uh, which is what he calls people who are just sort of like obsessed with science and rationality and whatever, try to impose their derived visions on the complex realities that people are adapted to without thinking about leaving space for information gathering from those complex realities. They end up creating monstrosities often. And I, I, I think that that's a big danger. Yeah. Do you want to uh, flesh that out a little bit more? I, like uh, explain kind of the, the Hayekian knowledge problem uh, and, and and how this relates to yeah the markets and well, politics like, and why you think there's a tension between people like thinking that the market is great, but polit or, like democratic politics isn't so good. One of the examples that Scott gives is Jane Jacobs in New York City. So like there was all, all the stuff of, you know, people being like, the city has to be rational. We have to have a grid. We have to, you know, build spaces that are zoned one way here and zoned another way there. And Jane Jacobs points out, well, actually, like what makes a city fun is that people have like lots of coffee shops to go to near where they live or that like there are interesting things going on in the street. And that actually makes people look at the street and that makes the street safe. And all these like ground level things about what it is to live in a city are often ignored by people who only think about it from like a rational scientific perspective. Right. And like that doesn't mean that science can't incorporate those things. 
but usually science is going to leave out some of that stuff. And like, it's only through a dialogue with what's going on on the ground that you figure those things out. And the, the problem with saying like, oh, well, that's true of markets, but like that doesn't need to be true of democracy, is that as I pointed out earlier, almost everything is some sort of collective action. Very li little can be done by an individual isolated on their own. So it, you have to allow to filter into collective actions and collective decision making those on the ground perspectives. Now, that doesn't mean that everything should just 100% bubble up. That doesn't work either. But there has to be more of a dialogue and more of an attempt in institutions to make room for that emergence rather than for everything to just come from what a scientist uh, wants to impose. So I'm inclined to think that like high modernism is underrated, that uh, uh, certainly like it, it didn't turn out super great in city design. Although I, I now think that you could have just rational planners who read the papers and decide, well, we're going to like rationally, like as a high modernist, plan it out in this organic fashion. But kind of the high modernist approach of just like trying to like schematize everything and standardize it, you know, it's given us lots of really wonderful things like, you know, mo modern agriculture, which like makes like a lot more food at like a much, much cheaper prices than ever before. It, like we managed to eradicate lots of diseases with just like very high modernist like vaccination programs. Uh, you know, we've got like the, the census is kind of a high modernist uh, program that d that delivers like really valuable information to us. I think like to some extent, um, Scott is inclined, he, he like picks out the cases where the high modernist mindset like didn't work out very well or didn't work out well initially, for example, in agriculture, where it like creates a lot of problems, but then like in the long term actually seemed to have worked out a lot better. And then like talks about that to like condemn the whole thing. Whereas I think uh, like to some extent now, now, now that idea is underrated because everyone wants to be, oh yeah, grassroots, bottom up, uh, that, that, that's the better way to do things. Well, look, I, I think that the right answer is things need to emerge from an appropriate level of organization. And if you make it too disaggregated, you lose the potential economies of scale that come, that are called like scientific knowledge, you know? But on the other hand, if you just assume that capital T, capital S, the state or the platform knows what's going on, you end up with really bad things happening. So one example of this is like, you know, Facebook, um, which I think someone should write a book called Seeing Like a Platform, um, you know, decides, oh, here's the metrics we need to ma maximize. And then they send their re reinforcement learning system to go maximize those metrics. And now, like, they, most of them live in the U.S., so if their kids are getting incredibly addicted to something and it's, like, destroying their lives, like, they at least have some sensitivity to that. Mm -hmm. But they have, like, nobody in Myanmar. And when it turns out they're maximizing their like metrics ends up leading to like people getting hacked to pieces in Myanmar, like it's pretty hard for them to see that or to get the feedback on that. And they employ, like they spend about 10% of their value add on labor. They don't hire people because they think, oh no, our algorithms will do it all, right? Mm -hmm. So like that sort of arrogance, that sort of unwillingness to like be like looking and think that there are maybe things that are missed in their models all over the place, I think can lead to really bad outcomes. So that's not to say that there isn't value to technology. Technology has a huge amount of value, but for it to re realize its value, it also requires human input. And that human input is being increasingly lost by abstract ideas that like artificial intelligence, which is really just collective human intelligence. And the question is just which types of collective human intelligence are most relevant. And, and some of them are just quote, the data that we provide, but some of them are a little bit more engaged than that. 
and and then there's programmers, but it's not just the programmer and the like lemmings. There's all sorts of levels of human intelligence in between that. And if you obscure that and you strip it away, you're going to lead yourself into lots of errors that can be catastrophic, but that can also just not be as successful as things that engage people. I think I, I think I agree with you in the case of Facebook. I'm like very worried that like social media companies that have like say very little profit and only a handful of employees can have like very dramatic cultural effects. And it's basically they have no model for that. And indeed, like few incentives to even care about that. Other than yeah. perhaps like as human beings, they might worry if they see that they're like destroying the country to make like $100 million in profit. It seems that because there's such strong network effects with social media that the, uh, whoever like ends up harnessing those network effects is then going to have a lot of discretion about how they run their, the network because they're going to be quite hard to displace. That's the problem with private property. <laughs> I mean, that is precisely the problem with private property. All right, That's let's why private do- <laughs> property in the context of increasing returns makes no sense. It's like, why on earth should we have a system where we sort of like randomly choose some person to have been whoever was there at the right moment and then put them in charge of like the future of humanity? I mean, that's just like such an incredibly stupid algorithm. <laughs> okay yeah so that's another framing of like yeah this, this problem of like um natural monopolies like jesus giving people arbitrary power and it's like not clear why yeah, yeah why they why they deserve it i guess th- maybe let's synthesize two things now because on the one hand yeah. uh you're you're uh you don't like this kind of top-down design of society. I think there's like a lot of information that gets lost when you have like elites doing that kind of thing. On the other hand, it seems like a lot of your schemes to like some people at least, I know Arnold Kling had this reaction, The Economist. He like looks at this and he's like, good grief, this is just like another social designer who's trying to like figure out how to like change politics and then like change the market. And it has this kind of like slightly like socialist vibe or at least like somewhat designer designers feel to it that I think gives some people the heebie-jeebies that they're like worried that this could that this could end very badly so yeah how, how would you react to that well I think that the the first thing to recognize is that the notion that there is some undesigned system that is called private property and that like we're going to have all this technological innovation on top of that and not do anything to respond to that at all and that's going to lead to some undesigned world is just totally counterfactual. And every time someone like pretends like that's true, they end up with a Facebook or with a General Motors or with a Rockefeller who then dominates the whole thing and designs it however they want with no attention to everybody else. Right. So like it's actually hard work to have an emergent undesigned system. And it requires careful thinking about the system in order to make that the case. Now, that's not to say that I think you should impose from the top down, as I said, some new alternative without experimental growth and learning and so forth. But I think that if one wants, as, say, Arnold Kling wants, to have a society that is genuinely decentralized and emergent, you need to avoid concentrations of power, which requires new innovations in how the system works, just as emerge from that system, technological innovations. I think the fundamental problem with libertarians, and I think it's just like incredibly frustrating and incoherent, is that they're all like, oh, no, 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 we need to stick with the things that work when it comes to social institutions. But then the social institutions they want to stick to allow technologists to do whatever they want. You like go to someone like Tyler Cowen, and he's like, Oh, these awful Americans, they don't care enough about economic growth. They don't care enough about moving around and adapting to all these new technologies. 
And then I say, oh, well, what about trying a new voting method? And he's like, no, we couldn't possibly do that. That would mess with the incredibly delicate system of voting that we've established over all these generations. I mean, it's just like it like literally it's just completely inconsistent and incoherent. Yeah, it's another way of viewing the inconsistency that to, to be so worried about changing uh, political or like legal institutions, uh, but to be like a totally blithe about like companies just coming, like being totally overturned and like, t- like the market is constantly changing in its organization. And so right. in a sense, like uh, if, if you were worried, if you were very worried that any change was like very dangerous, then you'd probably want to be like, you know, press pause on the market or like slow down the market as well. Right. Exactly. That's changing society and people's lives dramatically. But I guess also you're saying here that they want to like, I don't know, dis- disempower social engineers on the, on the legal side, but then they don't mind like Zuckerberg being able to like have massive influence over like how Facebook is and how people spend their time. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. To, all right. So to, to, to somewhat play devil's advocate here, yeah. um, I think you could imagine someone who is like an incrementalist pro-marketish person who like hears you start talking about like we're going to abolish private property to some extent or like start having people own, they always have to rent their private properties is more more the way uh yeah. that it actually goes, goes in the book unfortunately we haven't had time to go into that that idea in detail and they're like good grief this is just creating another like government agency or like you know the bureaucrats or politicians who now have this like horrifying power over people's lives to like yeah. take away the things that they care about by like raising these taxes or like organizing that the tax is a different way they're like even if in principle the kind of system that you're describing like would would all be very nice uh in fact it's like creating a new center of power that can then be exploited quite a lot and this this is what's like driving their their their, their fear no, no, none of the things i'm describing create new power centers a big property of them is that they can just be basically run on the blockchain, more or less. I mean, like the the tax system that you were describing, or just let's focus on the voting because the other people haven't heard the tax thing. It's not like the quadratic voting opens up some huge amount of discretion. All the discretion belongs to the individuals. And in fact, I think it reduces discretion because right now what ends up happening is that like because the system of one person, one vote is so incoherent, Everything depends on how you like gerrymander things or how you slice things up. Like the system is not like maximizing some coherent objective function. It's just like some total kludge thing. And so everything then depends on precise details of how you frame it. And those are always done by some discretionary authority. So the current system is actually incredibly, incredibly sensitive to like initial conditions and precise micro specifications of things. Whereas the systems that I'm describing are, it seems like, much more robust to those types of things. And so the, the reality is just because something is familiar does not mean that it's simple and not tweakable by someone who has power. In fact, the Facebook thing shows that. The, like, the current state of people's resentment against elites show that. Like, it's actually an intellectual question whether a system is that way or is not that way. And you can't just avoid that by just appealing to saying that, oh, well, it's been around for a while because all the conditions that have been around for like another thing that's been around for a while is the fact that since the beginning of industrialism, we've had dramatic changes to social policy every like 30 years, except for in the recent period. And so if you really want to say like what was going on during that period, it was a consistency of social and technological innovation happening relatively in parallel with each other. So if you want to conserve something, let's conserve that. Yeah. Well, why do you think the kind of uh, yeah, social reforms that you uh, think are desirable kind of slowed down in the last generation? Because 
of the ideology of neoliberalism. Now, neoliberalism itself brought some really good innovations. It brought free trade, which opened us up to poor countries, which led to a huge amount of reduction in inequality across countries, which I'm a huge fan of. It actually, I think, was very important honestly, to allowing women into the workforce because it broke down some of the rigid structures of unions and so forth that were like, so there were a lot of good things that it did. But to then be like, oh, and now any continuing innovation along that dimension is anathema, but we need to dramatically accelerate technological progress just seems to me to be crazy and incredibly dangerous and likely to destabilize the world. So it might be worth clarifying what you mean by neoliberalism, because I think of the, the, the people who identify as neoliberals as being like uh, quite unusually enthusiastic about the kind of reforms that you're in favor of. But it seems like you're thinking of them as people who are, who are skeptical. Well, what I really mean is capitalists. <laughs> I see. So you mean more like uh, like more, more, more libertarian, perhaps, than... Yeah. I see. But uh, yeah, I mean, isn't it the case that like people who identify as like capitalists or like uh, libertarians probably again are like more like I, I, at least like there'd, there'd be an over-representation of people who are very enthusiastic about these dramatic reforms because often they're, they're people people who are like a strongly libertarian are people who are drawn to like a strong like clear systematic framework and like a strong ideology and then they, so they well, might well I mean some people who used to identify themselves as libertarian at least are very sympathetic to these ideas but there's a class of people out there who are, I don't know if you want to call it conservative or what you want to call it exactly, but like conservative libertarians or something who just <laughs> want to preserve like this. All of the past change was good. All of the future change is bad. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. It's interesting. Okay. So yeah, a, a couple of months ago, you also got into an exchange talking about kind of effective altruism and I guess, yeah. especially like the the effective kind of philanthropy movement uh, yeah. and some some reservations you have about that that mindset, which yeah. which, which I guess like just kind of a natural outgrowth of what you've been saying before. Um, do, you, do, you yeah. want to, do you want to talk about that? Where, where you think like people like me might be going wrong? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it is a natural outgrowth of what I'm saying. I was saying before, but like basically, look, as an intellectual uh, set of investigations, I think it's an interesting place to go. But there's a there's a certain set of cultural practices which I, I'm going to now caricature. Yeah. Um, but which I think are very dangerous. <laughs> yeah. So the, those, those are, we're really rational. Um, most other people aren't rational. Most people just follow their emotions. We're going to deduce exactly what reason tells us is the right thing to do. And then we're going to like either talk to people who have a lot of money or get a bunch of money ourselves somehow. And who knows exactly how that works, maybe in a way that's not so great in some ways. but. And then we're going to use this money and power to like make the world the right way that it should be. And that is going to be largely based on science and reason. And we're going to impose it. And we're not going to pay that much attention to like getting feedback from the people whose lives that affects or like being in conversation with them. We're just going to use this money and power that we got somehow to do that. And that set of attitudes, which you could call high modernism or Another word that is vaguely related that Jaron Lanier, one of my collaborators, came up with was weenie supremacism. That set of attitudes, I think, is very dangerous and very er erosive of democracy and is something I think we need to resist. And I'm not trying to lump all effective altruism into that, but I think there is a tendency of certain people in the community, especially those that are like very inclined towards like field experiments or everything, you know, and who don't sort of see that the effective altruism movement itself has like dramatically changed its mind about things like 
a huge number of times in the you know recent years and that maybe actually they might have learned something from like all the people out there who like could have told them that maybe social stability was important and maybe like legitimacy was important and like that's ended up becoming like a lot of what you know Ben Todd these days talks about being important after many iterations of thinking about this so I just think like I'm not saying that there's no value in that stuff I'm not saying that that, that isn't an interesting dimension of research and whatever. But I think the notion that there is a small group of people who has exclusive access to the truth, who doesn't really need to talk to other people, and that wherever their reason leads them should guide huge amounts of wealth and power um, without a lot of like constant feedback from others, I think that's like a practice and a way of being that we should resist. So uh, I guess like I'm mostly focused on uh, preventing global catastrophes, so like preventing nuclear yeah. war, like preventing pandemics, yeah. that kind of thing. And I guess I'm I'm not sure how much this applies to that, or whether you're thinking of that, or whether you're thinking more of the kind of like anti anti poverty work, uh, where perhaps you end up, yeah, like having too much influence over people in the developing world and like caring, like being too paternalistic. Yeah, I I mean I think that the preventing catastrophes stuff tends to be a little bit better, be precisely because it has the character that there probably isn't that much local knowledge about it because it's these low probability events that like you're sort of not going to figure out unless you spend a lot of time just like in a dedicated way thinking about them. Yeah. Um, as I said, and, and that has like been more common among the somewhat later iterations of the effective altruism movement. But like, I, I think, and also more generally, like people have gotten to long-termism and then they realize it's not all about growth. And instead, it's a little bit more about like making sure the system doesn't go off the rails, which makes you then think about legitimacy, which yeah. that you see what I mean? So like that's leading in a good direction. But I sort of think people might actually have gotten there a little bit faster if rather than just like reflecting on it and following the line of the logic, they'd been in conversation with a wider range of social actors and thinkers and taken what those people said seriously and like reflected on it. And they might have more quickly converged to where they're getting. And furthermore, there may be further iterations that people have to go through. And maybe some of those conversations approached with a little bit more openness could be useful in helping them iterate through some of these things rather than cloistering themselves into a room, sh being sure that they know what's right and then finding out a few years later that actually what they thought was wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think having seen it up close that the history seems very different to me because uh, yeah. I think like actually people were in favor of uh, like the institutions and the like not in favor of like just growth, like even in the early 2000s, like very early. And in fact, like yeah. all this stuff about like, or oh, actually we should like think about like economic growth was coming more from actually talking to other people and finding that they're not convinced by the weirdo like long-term stuff and, and instead we should like make some concessions to common sense uh, and to like what other people think uh, and it's like yeah. more as people have become like more confident about their weird rationalist like high modernist approach that people are like oh no actually we should just like be thinking long-termist we should be thinking preventing disasters we should be like doing doing this like doing this unusual stuff I think that that like that will be like a lot less uh, I think visible from 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 outside uh, mm. but um uh, I guess, I guess, they, yeah. So do, do you want to like point to any things that you think people might uh, be funding or getting involved with without uh, like spending too little time talking to yeah recipients or like or collecting enough like local knowledge and how, and how they might do things differently? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of things that came out of the community that I thought were a little bit misled. Mm. So there was at one point within the uh, 80,000 hours community, mm. sort of an attitude that it doesn't really matter that much whether your career is sort of like directly a good thing or not, what really matters is making a lot of money and giving it to like charity. And I, I, I thought that was really misled and that that was really like, 
that that sort of a way of talking about things was like even beyond its direct being like, I think, factually wrong, like was also just insensitive and sending a really bad message about like the value system of people involved in the movement. Because I think as a like practical matter of human psychology, most people's reaction to that is like once you get into that sort of a career, you end up just going down that bad trajectory. And I knew lots of people who were influenced by that type of thing and did that and ended up in a bad place. Hmm. So I thought that that was a really misled set of ways of thinking about things, you know? So that that's one thing. Uh, a, a second thing is I think a lot of the like overly field experiment driven, like effective ways of like, you know, charitable giving that didn't think about broader social structures and effects of that sort of stuff was I think people started to move away from that, but I, but I, I don't think that was a very good trajectory to go down. And I don't want to identify that with any particular set of people within the effective altruism movement or not, but there certainly was something like that, that I identified with the effective altruism movement that I, I thought was misled in, in a bad direction. So, yeah, I guess, I guess we haven't thought that like, uh, yeah, earning to give, uh, just to make the most amount of money and disregarding everything else was, was a good idea in a, in a long time. We spent like years making sure that people <laughs> are aware that we don't think that, um, and we have this uh, article, like, uh, should you take a hump, like, is it okay to take a harmful career in order to, to make more money or do more yeah. good in some other way that, I, uh, that like describes our views on that in some detail. Yeah. But I suppose I'm inclined to say that that's like a bad advice just on kind of factual grounds that like, in fact, that's not the way to do the most good, like even within our framework. I think I would agree with that. But look, I, I saw several things coming out of it yeah. that read that way to me, but okay. maybe yeah. I was wrong, you know? Yeah. I mean... I think I think we were initially uh, too enthusiastic about only to give and too blithe about some of these other yeah. considerations. That's that's certainly the case. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah it's, so you're you're thinking that uh, several people have gone into say earning to give careers uh, where they like didn't have a supportive uh, like altruistic minded like group of friends and then they kind of fell off the wagon so to speak. Yes. Guess, yeah. Absolutely. That's interesting. I guess I, I we were we were actually quite worried about that internally uh, early on yeah. and then I think I've become less worried about that because I've seen so few examples of it and so many examples of people staying in kind of the corporate world and remaining like extremely altruistic. And, and continuing to give like more than I yeah. would have guessed. But I guess it's possible that, that it's just the people who know us personally who are like, who remain uh, committed. Whereas like, people connected who don't. to you. Yeah. Look, I mean, the thing is the people that I am talking about to a large extent, I'm not sure that how much they were influenced by the effect of altruism movement or how much they just used that as a ruse because they were always intending to do something else. But it was a rhetoric that like, maybe that's the broader point that I'm, that I'm, I would, I want to make is that there are, like you have to think of the things you're doing as speech acts and not purely intellectual acts. You know what I mean? And they condition a certain sort of a society and that society, there's a lot of people in the society who are doing very exploitative things and they may use what you're saying to further those exploited events as a cover. And, yeah. And other people who feel that they're being exploited by those people will then use you as a target for that. You know what I mean? And you have to sort of think a little bit about that social context, you know, yeah. when when you say talk about these types of things, you know. OK, yeah. Talk, talking about the like uh, randomized controlled trials, like experimental yeah. uh, theme of effective yeah. altruism, which uh, has yeah, always always been uh, one of the threads and, and still is today. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess that the, I'm maybe like lean a bit lukewarm on that because uh, yeah. I'm like not. Uh, I guess, well, one thing is I'm not focused on problems where RCTs are terribly informative. Uh, like yeah. as much as you're trying to prevent nuclear war, it's not clear what yeah. RCT you would run. But yeah. 
I suppose the, the, the people who are very into that would say, well, uh, this allows us to like maybe it's odd that there's all this distributed information, but nonetheless, we can run studies that kind of uh, like pick it up and allow us as kind of experts to 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 suggest where money could could have the largest impact. But in fact, that does just seem to kind of be the case that these studies are fairly informative and that this allows us to do better than it allows us to do better than just like uh, cash transfers um, yeah. potentially. And uh, it just like gives us more information to figure out what, how, we, how we ought to act. Look, I, I'm not against RCTs. Not only do I like RCTs, like I'm involved in lots of, I mean. Some of my I, best I, friends I, runs RCTs. I, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, exactly. I, I, I have 10 friends who are RCT runners. Yeah. But I do think, and I don't actually think this is too much of an issue anymore, but I think that there was a period during which there was much more focus on that than there was on stuff that had to do with trying to find more effective ways to build democratic institutions of various sorts or things like that. And I think that can be very condescending. And again, in terms of like the way it comes off as a speech act, like, I mean, you've probably had Rob Reich on this program or something like that. Uh, not yet, but probably we will sometime. Yeah, or, or Anand Jiriharadas. And I think there's a lot of truth to what they're saying. And again, like the Gates Foundation, how do I feel about that? I mean, I think there's a little bit of a centralizing tendency there that is worrying and that is erosive of very valuable institutions. And I'm not saying that the research isn't useful or shouldn't be done or whatever, but like I would prefer if there was more back and forth between different power centers on that. I guess it's, it's interesting that you say, it sounds like you think that people should have been more interested in institutional reform, that that would have been better. Because often the people who are concerned about paternalism on the part of, you know, rich people in California, that they're more enthusiastic about just providing, you know, either cash or like basic health care than they are about people going and meddling in like how social institutions in the, in the developing world are functioning. They worry that that's like more colonialist or like uh, is more an exploitation of power than just like, say, preventing people from getting malaria and then letting them figure out the politics on, on their own. Yeah, I mean, so I think be- that that's a very capitalistic way of thinking about it, you know. <laughs> I don't think that that's what Rob Reich would say. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's what Anand would say. I think he would say that, you know, development is social institutions. I suppose it might be a question of like how you go about it, whether you just come in and say, yes, we've figured out that this is how uh, like your democracy ought to function uh, versus like going in there and working with people directly on it. Yeah. I guess in, in terms of uh, yeah de- decentralizing power, uh, I guess about 60% of GDP is spent by like individuals roughly. And you've got like two or 3% on philanthropy and like the rest is kind of government. So in a sense, like things are like spending power is already quite decentralized. Although I guess because income distribution is so, uh, so unequal, in fact, uh, like a lot of it in a sense is, sense is like quite concentrated with, with, with particular individuals. But I suppose people might, uh, I think some economists are like, some people have like a more of a capitalist leaning, think that that's where like the decentralization comes from is like uh, people having their own private property that's inviolable, that they have their house and they have their stuff and, and they have their private sphere where they don't really have to care what other people think. And that that is something that protects us from tyranny and concentration of power. And I think then, and then they look at this uh, thing where you would have to kind of rent your land. You can never buy it outright. You always have to rent it. Um, and they're like, oh, but this is destroying this private sphere that allows decentralization of power and like gives people a place where they can always do what they want, come what may. Yeah, but I think that the fundamental flaw in that logic can be easily seen on the Internet. Like, think about 
Do you really think decentralization of power online comes from every individual's ability to read and consent or not consent to the terms and conditions that they're so easily able to negotiate with the tech giants? I mean, you just think about it and it's like as a logical matter, the actual power that people derive in a decentralized way almost always comes from their ability to act collectively. Mm. Like it's almost never possible on your own to exercise much power. And om like the only people who think that power comes from your private property are people who have a huge amount of wealth. And they're able to use that wealth because they have monopolized the collective wealth of a large number of people. And so then, you know, yeah, sure, then, then private property is a source of your power. I guess that the standard thing that uh, like libertarians or neoliberals, or I guess like even social democrats might say is that the way to solve that is just with government redistribution, that they collect taxes and then send people a check and that provides them with the positive freedom because they, they always know that they're going to have this money. So perhaps you get well, like this enthusiasm for you know, minimum basic income and so on. So I think that that would take away all of the freedom at some level, because if you truly flattened everything out, then no one would have an ability to act collectively. Everyone would be on the flat. So like right now, there's like the people who have a lot of wealth, they can do, they can actually feel some sense of agency. And the people who don't have much feel no sense of agency. Now, if you flatten it all out, like maybe you double people's income, or do those people really feel a sense of agency? Well, they still would feel a sense of agency when they're able to act collectively. But, you know, it's not really the inequality so much. See, I actually think inequality is the fundamentally wrong thing to be going after, even though I believe in equality. I think the fundamentally wrong thing is that there are all these collective processes where we've randomly chosen someone to be in charge of that collective process, because that collective process is the actual source of agency. And so then whoever is in charge of it feels agency and everybody else feels none. And the, what you really need to spread is that sense of collective agency, not the sense of this completely atomized individual agency, because ultimately that doesn't allow you to do very much to actually feel like you're in control of any process. I feel like I haven't understood that. <laughs> so if, if you like partially redistribute some income so that like people whose incomes previously were like low are now like more medium, then they have like, th they can still coordinate with people through the forming of like corporations or cooperatives or nonprofits or just like friendship groups. Right, right, right. And, and so I'm not saying that the redistribution is a bad, yeah. I'm just saying it's not sufficient. Because if you've taken and privatized all of the co forms of collective agency, which are like corporations, which actually control the major coordination in our society or states, if you've sort of put those in a very narrow set of hands, then you've already basically like centralized agency. And just then giving people a little bit more income doesn't actually accomplish very much in, in re-decentralizing that. O only by allowing that collective agency to be emergent and flowing and have people have a chance to participate in that, do I think you give people a real sense of agency? And so this is things like the liberal radicalism, where you're coming up with new ways of people to coordinate, to do things that previously were just not, there, there were no institutions for right. yeah, available. So I guess like all of us have like kind of a, a deep worldview that like informs, yeah, how we, how we approach these problems. And I guess it seems like kind of a deep part of your worldview is that decentralization is good, that like concentrations of power you're, you're, you're very nervous about and that like, you know, everyone has like something really useful to contribute. I guess like what, uh, what, what things could you see that would like uh, make you, make you wonder whether, whether, whether that was actually right? Like, is there, is, could you, could you imagine? 
imagine like reading reading some papers and you're like oh actually like uh we know we need like a technocratic elite to be running everything and uh in fact like I'm more nervous now about decentralization of power than I used to be. Because of course, there's like many threads of political philosophy that are like quite concerned about majoritarian rule, which I guess you're, you're trying to like deal with these concerns. But Well, I am concerned about that too. Yeah. yeah. But look, I, I think that, look, if, if I believed in some of the like culturalist or racist stuff, and I really thought that they're like, or honestly, if biotechnology progresses to the point where some people are able to like turn themselves into X-Men and everybody else is left behind. My first solution to that would be, well, let's try to equalize that. But if I couldn't, and there was some persistent reason why, like her, think about her. Yeah. Imagine that there were like a few people in the world who had the capacities of the her people, you know, like her. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, nice. and, and everybody else was just like an ordinary human. <laughs> yeah, th then there would be real questions of like, is really the richness and complexity of organization living at that level and not at the level of ordinary people. But my guess is in that sort of world, like the sorts of questions I'm talking about aren't even going to be an issue anymore. Like it'll, those people, th those beings are just going to separate themselves and, and there will be nothing anyone can do about it. I guess uh, in that case, it seems like a futaki, like Robin's, Robin Hansen's idea of having uh, where people uh, vote for what they want, but then like bet on what the outcomes will be, uh, might, might work quite well. Cause you would avoid exploitation by having like distributed like voting power, but then you would have like these like superhuman, uh, <laughs> uh, minds would, would like predict what the outcomes of uh, different policies or different actions would be. And then they'd be able to achieve whatever outcome was specified by a broad population. So we're, we're, we're very often science fiction now. I have issues. I have issues for, with futarchy, but I think like what I, what I really object to, it's less even like the worldview I'm talking about. I think really the problem I have is that there is a rhetoric out there of trying to convince people that they're insufficient and that everything should be the private property of a small number of people for this reason. When in fact, if it was really the case that those few people were like so important and great and powerful, they wouldn't need to have all this rhetoric to convince other people of it. People would just see it. They would get it. Like if, if there were really a few X-Men floating around, like it would be manifest to everyone. And in fact, those X-Men wouldn't even need everyone else. They just, they would do the Atlas shrugged thing. Like go <laughs> off, seastead, do whatever you want and have no connections with the outside world. And if you're really that great, just do it and stop bitching and trying to convince everybody else that they're inadequate and stupid and useless and that you're the, the elite. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing that I think is so ridiculous. I think it's, it's called like, Monaco. <laughs> Well, fine. And that doesn't bother anyone if you want to go do that. But don't take the private prop. Don't take as private property all the stuff that was produced in the society that we created. Go off on your own with nothing into the forest and build this great Atlantis that you're capable of doing and that no one else can do. You know, great. And and you know, honestly, if there were a bunch of X Men, they would do that. They wouldn't bother with everyone else. They just go off into outer space and do their own thing. Yeah. But the thing. Is, it's just not like that's not actually what's going on. What's actually going on is that there's this elite of people who's trying to use rhetoric to dominate others and to take the collective work that others have done and expropriate it to themselves. And I think that's nonsense. So, so to, to speak up for the um, poor, poor elite of the world that have been the driving yeah. policy the last few decades. I mean, again, uh, to, to repeat, I guess I, I look at 
global statistics. And I'm like, wow, like health is improving so quickly. Education's rising. Uh, like globally, GDP growth is really good. We've had like no major wars. Like I think like setting aside, again, these risks from technologies, like the world just seems to be going like really well to me, uh, like much better than it has at almost any other point in history. And like, it's true that there's this like middle, like upper to or like middle class group in like developed countries who've had a bad few decades where their incomes have stagnated for like reasons that people try to debate. But we're talking about like 5 to 10% of the global population while like most other people have been doing really fantastically. And do we really want that kind of tail to wag the whole dog and say, no, let's like radically change things that seem to be going super well just because there's like this like very vocal minority of people in the world who are like upset? Look, I think throughout history, there have been these like moments when big inequalities of some sort arose and then they got resolved in some way. And I think to a large extent, you know, the whole neoliberal thing that we're in right now was a result of sort of like women, minorities, people in poor countries being like fed up with the way that they'd been marginalized. And sort of neoliberal progressivism, which is like our current ideology, is to a large extent like an outgrowth of dealing with those inequalities. But in the process, other inequalities flared up. Mm. And if you want, like if you want people in the poor world to do well, if you want women and minorities to do well, you better find a way to address the concerns of the people who are feeling really alienated right now, because there's a lot of them and they're in strategic positions. And we, according to my theories, can address their concerns in ways that actually will make things better for the rest of the world that you're worried about. But just ignoring them and saying, let's just keep on the trajectory is, I think, a recipe for a huge reaction that's going to bring down all the benefits that you had before and possibly destabilize the whole global community. So I think it's a really stupid and arrogant approach to ignore those issues just because the things that you've done have accomplished something. Yeah, I guess I'll, uh, I do feel it's like, it, it seems to be like women and minorities who most, who vote most consistently for like the institutionalist candidate. Uh, well, like, well, so, so Hillary Clinton, obviously that's, that's the case, but I, I think maybe I'll right. look like a, a more, more broadly, uh, whether it's the case that, yeah, people who come from, uh, like m- more marginalized groups are more likely to vote for like, or they seem more dissatisfied and more likely to vote for like radical changes. Well, but th- those groups have, those groups have been like the current system has been helping them converge. Right, exactly. They've and, been like and, doing a lot better. Yeah, and that's great. Yeah, that's a huge advance in human welfare. It's a huge accomplishment, and it's the reason why, like, for all my critiques of neoliberal capitalism, I still think it was a major improvement on what came even immediately before in the 1950s. Mm. But that doesn't mean it's enough, or that it's stable, or that we don't need to do things to keep it from going off the rails. Yeah, this, this has been super stimulating. I, I want to just, uh, we're almost out of time, but I want to yeah. give you like maybe five minutes to talk about, yeah, what you'd like listen what, what you'd like listeners to do if they want to get on board, on board with this, this agenda, like yeah. what they should be reading, just like your, 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 your pitch for changing society for the, for the better and how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So we're trying to build a movement that connects really a broad range of people. We have, you know, arts and communications, entrepreneurship and technology, ideas and research, and activism in government. And we need people in all of those areas who want to get involved and work with people from all the other areas. We need people to start local groups. We need people to develop public policies. We need technocrats who want to work within existing power structures to create experiments. We need entrepreneurs who want to build new platforms and tools and whatever and have those things grow. We need artists 
who want to help communicate these ideas and imagine them. We need researchers who want to develop the ideas f further and want to get beyond just talking to technocrats or talking in this narrow language, but actually want to start engaging in a democratic spirit and being in touch with all these other people. And there are now about 100 groups around the world, and we need many more of them. And uh, anyone who's interested in getting involved can reach out to me on Twitter, reach out to at Rad Exchange on Twitter, go to uh, www.radicalexchange.org and don't just follow my writings. This isn't about me. We're, we're creating a whole, we're gonna create a intellectual uh, partial commons where it's going to be basically like somewhere between Wikipedia and authorship where there's gonna be a list of signatures. So submit things to that. Uh, sign articles on there, look at the ideas, and, and they're going to belong to the community or partially belong to the community uh, in this sort of blurred out way. There, there are just like all sorts of uh, uh, ways to get engaged with this. And this thing has just been exploding. I genuinely believe that there isn't out there right now a coherent attempt to create a school of thought that represents an embrace of markets and technology and diversity that can actually address the current sources of our crisis. So if you believe in all those things, if you want to embrace them, help us build this thing. And you'll find the most amazing community, the most diverse community of people with all these different skill sets from all these different backgrounds from all around the world who are interested in engaging in that project with you. And let me tell you, it's such a rewarding thing not to be alone and in a narrow community and not to claim things as your private property, but to feel the zeitgeist flow through you. Um, and that's what the last few months have been with me. And I think everyone who's been involved in the movement intimately, so many of them just volunteering. We have 50 people giving 10 or more hours of their time a week as volunteers to, to Radical Exchange. But every one of them, I think, has found that this is the most exciting thing that they've done because they're with such a diversity of people with all these different skill sets all coming together to create that vision of a liberal future that's actually sustainable and believable and that can save us from uh, these real dangers that we're facing. So uh, check out all those resources that I talked about. Uh, I have a syllabus online if you want to read more and, uh, and, and just get involved in the community. We'll, we'll stick out links to links to all of those things. I knew yeah. this was going to be an exciting uh, conversation, but it's been uh, been even even more so and, and unexpected in, awesome. in a lot of ways. So uh, yeah, the awesome. book the book is uh, Radical Markets, and my guest today has been uh, Glenn Weil. Thanks for coming on the Thank podcast. You. Right? Thanks so much. Yeah, take care. I hope you uh, enjoyed that spirited and uh, wide ranging conversation as much as I did. Uh, if you'd like to go along to the Radical Exchange event in Detroit, check out the event at radicalexchange.org. That's the uh, letter X. They have a list of which speakers are coming, uh, and they include uh, Ethereum founder Vitalik Buterin. And tickets are available uh, now, although they're likely to sell out fairly soon. Also, just a reminder to check out our job board at 80,000hours.org slash job hyphen board. There are a lot of uh, great positions there that can uh, help many listeners, I think, find a fulfilling job in which they can greatly improve the world. Uh, the podcast uh, and the job board, I think, are going to be a pretty uh, killer combination. Um, one of them uh, helping people uh, like you to, to kind of deepen their understanding of, of how to do more good and how to think about the different opportunities available. Uh, and the other then uh, connecting uh, people with uh, concrete opportunities to make a bigger contribution. So making it a lot easier to, to get started or find a role that's, uh, that's uh, even more impactful. Or at least uh, that's our hope. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.